On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're taking a trip back to the 1950s with a witch and an android in Disney Plus's WandaVision, leaping ahead to 2380 to discover whether Star Trek is a laughing matter in new animated Star Trek Lower Decks on Amazon, and finally hopping back to 1981 for Channel 4's new show about five 18-year-old friends living in 80s London during the rise of the AIDS crisis in It's a Sin. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, your weekly guide to the various highlights of modern television, something that's grown increasingly important now that it's basically our only glimpse of the outside world. And uh, joining me inside the Pilot TV Goldfish Bowl this week are not two, but three venerable co-hosts. Uh, having missed last week due to an inconvenient bout of COVID, Terry White returns to us fighting fit this week, having proved that a 20-hour This Is England marathon is too much unrelenting grimness for even a coronavirus to survive. How are you feeling, Terry? Uh, much better, thank you. And I'll have you know that it was actually 54 hours of the West Wing. See, I, I've always said that the West Wing is the panacea for all ills, and, you, and you've proved me right, so this is good. Yeah, I did have to re-watch some episodes because I was tripping, <laughs> and then there was um, an evening where some events were happening with Trump that we may remember, and I was watching the 25th, the 25th um, episode, obviously, where uh, President Bartlett, without wanting to give away any spoilers, um, hands over the presidency for a short period. And I, I honestly thought I'd imagined the Pence thing, and I was like, my dreams are powerful, man. Uh, but it was, um, there were some bits I had to re-watch because I couldn't work out if they'd really happened or it had been part of COVID fever. But I, yeah, I'm I'm now uh, towards the end of season six, and I, I texted you the other night, didn't I, to say I am already in the deepest of deep mornings about this ever being over. Yeah, it will come, sadly. Uh, also with us is a man who may not have caught COVID, but it almost certainly follows him on Twitter. It's Mr. Boyd Hill. <laughs> How you doing, boy? <laughs> I'm fine, thanks. But joining our little team this week is a very special guest indeed. He is an acclaimed screenwriter and TV producer, a man who brought us such brilliant shows as Queer as Folk, A Very English Scandal and Cucumber. He turned Christopher Eccleston into God in The Second Coming. He gave us a terrifyingly accurate look at our immediate futures in years and years. He is the man who resurrected Doctor Who for the modern era and the genius behind this week's It's a Sin. But even that cannot compare to the three episodes of Chuckle Vision he wrote back in 1992. <laughs> it is the one, the only, Russell T. Davis OBE. How are you, sir? To me, to you. To me, Indeed. to you. Indeed. <laughs> were they everything you dreamed of? What was it like meeting the Chuckle Brothers? Uh, do you know, they were lovely. They were very, very nice people. And it was, in some ways, that was the easiest script in the world because you literally type out to me, to you, to me, to you. And three, three pages of that. It was a nice little wage that was, thank you. Literally sold worldwide everywhere because Chuckle is a universal language. They're watching that slapstick in Uganda. To this day, I still get a little 10 pence from those episodes. So no knocking the Chuckle Brothers. That's Happy amazing. Days. That is amazing. Uh, we, in fact, wrote a script script for the Chuckle Brothers once as Empire Magazine called Chuckle Impact and it was a remake of the Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> film Double Impact starring the Chuckle Brothers uh, and it, it got to the point we were going out to Rotherham to shoot it and it all fell apart but the oh <laughs> you can see that poster to me too no slacking that's what that man used to say to them every week to remember no slacking <laughs> He was the third brother. He was the third brother, that right. man. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> the facts you're getting I... here, the trivia. Wow. Well, you see, my mind goes to the um, the infamous news of the world story, which was a kiss and tell on a chuckle brother. I'm not, I can't remember which one. I wouldn't like to um, uh, hazard a guess. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't with it me. Was, 
<laughs> I thought I recognised yeah. that face, and um, it was very, and it was those brilliant lines in it about um, keeping their glasses on um, oh. during the act wow. of love making. Um, yes, wow. very good. One of their finest kiss and tells. As long as they were happy, that's all that yeah. matters. As long as they were chuckling, wouldn't you be happy? Yeah, if chuckling. Just... <laughs> chuckling. There's a to me to you joke. I'm just not going to make there. So let's, no. uh, let's let's just move on for that. To be fair, you have gone on to bigger and better things. Obviously, in chuckle vision. To be fair, not least of all, it's a sim which debuts on Channel Four this week. Uh, which, as we have yes. said, follows the lives of five friends in London in the early '80s, and it's a look at gay life during the emergence of the AIDS crisis, which no one really understood at that time. And this started life as the boys didn't it before the boys took the boys for homelander yes it was originally called i gotta say the comic the boys always did exist but True. i kind of, i kind of thought no one's gonna notice that because <laughs> I, I was the first uh, it's a sin script was sitting on a desk in 2015 so the boys tv series didn't exist and i sat there over the years as slowly this behemoth rolled closer and closer <laughs> we're making a show it's really successful we're making a second series and eventually it was it was hbo max who sent us an email saying do you honestly think we're gonna advertise and sell a show that's got the same title as another one <laughs> we're so stupid and um, then we had to take a deep breath I'm delighted because I think our new title is a thousand times better I mm. think it's I mean everything should have the word sin in the title really let's be honest who doesn't want to watch a programme that says sin so I'm pleased we did it and I love the boys I think it's a great show it's an amazing show um, yeah. but here we are yeah it's. I mean as you say 2015 so you've been trying to make this for quite a while like mm. when, when did it all first coalesce well I mean actually this is a story of a, a bunch of kids who were 18 in 1981, and I was 18 in 1981. So in, in a sense, I've been living this. It's been kind of ticking mm. away in my mind for a very long time. I can remember sitting in an office at Granada when I was working on a television show called The Grand, which was like Downton Abbey, but with 100th of Downton Abbey's uh, <laughs> money. It was set in a hotel in the 1920s, and you literally couldn't leave the hotel. We couldn't set foot outdoors because it would have cost too much. So, um, But I remember sitting there in 1995, uh, talking about my friend who'd been going to AIDS wards and the stories she'd seen and the people she'd met. And an executive sitting there, a woman called Katrina McKenzie, said, oh, that sounds like a good drama. And it ticked away since then. Weirdly, Katrina then moved to Channel 4 and said, come to Channel 4 and write a gay drama, which became Queer as Folk. So she, I don't think she knows this. She's been behind some of the biggest decisions of my life. I haven't seen her for about 15 years. Wonderful woman. But um, it's funny how those people make little comments and they just echo on for, for years and years and years. And um, yeah, I'm glad she did that. So it's been ticking away for a very long time as a piece of television. Mm. I think I wrote the first script in 2015 or 2016. It got kicked around to other channels like it does. No one, no one ever wants to give you six million quid immediately. <laughs> so um, it did that. And uh, a lovely man at Channel 4, you, ne you need your champions. A man called Lee Mason got the script and put it in his top drawer and just sat there for about three years thinking, that's a good script, we'll make that one day. And he waited for all the staff to change and all the heads of departments to go and, and new people to come in so he could pick up this script as new and go, look, I've got this. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks to Lee May, I can't ever thank that man enough. He got this made in the end. It has been explored a lot in, in American dramas, I feel, but, mm. but definitely not in, in British dramas. Why do you think that's that's it's been the case? interesting that because um, I think... It's an accident. I mean, there's a lot of good writers out there, a lot of gay writers who want to explore stuff like that. Actually, to be really technical about it, Mark Fowler in EastEnders came along. Yes. And that was 1990. Mm. And it's, it's a little historical slip. By the time he came along in 1990... 
people were saying, well, it's not just a gay disease, it's a straight disease as well. So they made a very great decision to say, let's show this affecting the straight population and then market a wife called Ruth, who's a straight woman. Mm. She died of AIDS. and But that, but that lasted from about 1992, I think about 2003. So you had an AIDS story within a show that then was getting 20 million viewers. So it was there. It wasn't a gay AIDS story, simply mm. by accident. They weren't ignoring anyone. They weren't being prejudiced. That's that's a show with a fantastic record of of queer representation on screen but thanks to that little and then other people did variations on that Emmerdale very cleverly gave Val HIV yeah. it's a mid, middle-aged woman who went around calling herself HIV Val and <laughs> Charlie Hardwick she was brilliant so so these little slips meant that it, it was on and, until I look I'm such a historian I do know this stuff but I, I think it was 2016 the Kira Richardson on uh on Hollyoaks mm. a Stee became the first gay character to have H to be HIV positive in an age actually when of course the retroviral medications were there so it wasn't a death sentence for Steve it mm. was a new life of living with with the condition so it's weird that I mean it's cropped up in all sorts of drums there's a very brilliant episode of Ashes to Ashes with Keely Horse who's mm. in It's a Sin I remember you remember that boy where Russell Tovey plays a rent boy yeah, and it's yeah. just a story it's, mm. and it's obviously it's set in the 1980s and it's that story about blackmail and he's sleeping with the wrong person and there are chases and right at the very end of the very last scene Akili Hawes, who's from the modern day, just notices a mark on his neck and says, oh, what's that? And he says, oh, I don't know. I just got that the other day. And she knows. She knows it's AIDS. And she knows it's a sarcoma. And she just says, I think you better get a doctor to look at that. I mean, it's a two-minute scene. Immensely yeah. powerful and resonant. I've mm. never forgotten that. It's a really, really great piece of television. There. So it has been there lurking. And also, we watch an awful lot of American stuff that fills yeah. the gap as well. Don't you think soaps have always led the way in that stuff? Because I'm mm. thinking about um, yeah. uh, rape. I'm thinking about domestic violence. I'm yeah. thinking about kind of LGBTQ issues. Generally, actually, when you said that, they've so yeah. often led the way in a way that people might consider maybe quote-unquote serious drama yeah. um, to do it. But actually, those soaps who speak to millions of people... Absolutely. Whenever, if we were sitting here discussing domestic violence or drugs or divorce or or queer representation, you will find that, and this is amongst television folk as well, you mm. can have the conversation for three hours before mentioning the soaps. They're mm. kind of excluded from the national narrative in a way. And I always say, and I've worked on soap operas, so I don't ignore them. And I sit there going, that's, I mean, all right, the viewing figures are not what they were now. And I do think, sadly, I think we're kind of looking at the end of the soap opera within about mm. 10 years, I would say, which is okay. You know, everything passes. But um, within in their day, when they were getting 20 to 30 million viewers, they were enormously powerful. Michael Cashman is the first gay character in EastEnders. Mm. Uh, Julie Hesmanhaus playing the first trans character in, in Coronation Street. Enormously powerful. They always get left out. We always mm. do, we do this always. We talk about American writers' rooms. We're obsessed with the writers' room. Yes. Bringing the writers' room system over here. 1960, they were doing that in Granada. <laughs> they set that up <laughs> on Coronation Street. The, all the soaps are run by writers' rooms. It's a very, very British way of working. So, yes, well done. Good for them. Hard work is done on those shows. You also mentioned, I remember when when we were chatting about It's a Sin, that there's a scene in um, the film Pride you mentioned, mm. um, which also yes. Russell Tovey is in, that lead cameo he has. Russell Tovey. I mean, yes, yeah. Pride, Pride is not ostensibly by HIV, but the lead character, um, is based on a real person, is HIV positive and did die of AIDS. And there's a fantastic scene where Russell Tovey's in it for two minutes and he's just coming down a flight of stairs going to a nightclub. And he says, I think he says he's on his farewell tour which means he's got the news, he's mm. HIV positive, he's going to die, and he just walks away. I mean, again, tiny scene, 
massive impact. It resonates and resonates. It's it's interesting because this was, I think this It's a Sin was slightly hard to commission because some commissioners did feel like they'd seen it mm-hmm. with you know and I know mm. I'm not attacking anyone there with no disrespect it's it's their job to actually it's their job to find the next thing to say it's their job to go and commission I may destroy you uh, you know that's it's a forward journey in television always so I'm not it, it's hard, it's really hard you know here I have a nice 20 minutes to explain to you why you haven't seen the uh, the AIDS crisis in Britain on television, but you don't have that in a meeting room in Shepherd's Bush. So um, it's it's pretty hard to get that. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to tell someone they haven't seen something that they think they've seen. Mm-hmm. So, and in some ways they have seen it. You know, you might, there are American dramas about this and, you yeah. know, uh, dramas are universal. If they're good, they're good. And, um, you know, we can all sit and watch The Normal Heart or, AIDS, or Angels in America and that speaks to us as much as it does to Americans. Nonetheless, it wasn't just the British angle, which I think is powerful, and I had mm. stuff to say about that. But I had I've watched all these dramas. If there's an age drama, I've seen it, and I've seen it on stage. I'm just naturally drawn to it because I lived through that age and I lost people, so I had things to say. It's like I wanted to clear a gap to actually that I think hadn't been said, and so you go and create a drama. That's why I think I think most writers are, we don't often talk about this, but. You know, you always talk about character and story and verisimilitude and honesty, but actually uh, most writers are arrogant enough to think I've got something to say here mm. and I'm going to say it. And I get the chance. I'm lucky. But the, the tone of this is really interesting because it's so warm and sort of like there's a real sense of camaraderie between those friends and you really feel it. And it's not until, without giving away any spoilers, I think the end of the first episode, which hits really hard, that oh, it's, good. it's suddenly yeah. sort of like, it's like having a bucket of cold water thrown. You've been sort of, you've been having <laughs> yeah. fun with all these great people and then suddenly this thing hits you and it kind of gives you a kind of a window into, I guess, this thing which has absolutely blindsided a whole community. Yes, it's a risky start. I mean, at one point mm. we were told... If we, I don't, I'm not criticizing anyone, but we were told if you start this on an AIDS ward in the middle of the crisis, <laughs> it's more likely to be commissioned. Really? That was interesting. Ooh. You know, people were both saying they feel like they've seen it and also they want to address it more directly. Yeah. And it's a big risk in the first episode that I start, and it's my choice and I stand by it and I'm glad I did it, that we start in 1981 when it's just a whisper on the horizon. It's mm. not even a whisper. Um, th- this was how it was. The, these people leave home in 1981, Richie, Jill, Roscoe, they leave home, they, they go, they get into a flat together, they have a laugh. They ha- That's what life was like. This, this thing slowly crept up on us and I wanted to capture that feeling of happy days and innocence, for want of a better word, and not 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 a pious innocence. They're having parties and they're having sex and they're coming out and having a great time. But this thing creeps up on them. I want mm. to literally recreate that feeling. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's it's. And then, my God, there were some shocks in store. <laughs> yeah. The end of episode. I'm glad that the end of episode one had that effect. Do I? Not very I, much. So. I almost worry that it's not. It doesn't quite have enough effect. So. Thank you. I'm no, really no, pleased. it really does. But Good. also, there's a there's an interesting parallel here because obviously we are living in a time where you know a virus has emerged, wow. and there was a part where no one knew what it was, and that, but it shows. Yeah. There's, I mean, we live in a very different information age than in the 80s but it feels like the difference here is so tied up in the kind of institutionalized homophobia of the time and mm. there's a particular scene with a doctor who almost refuses to discuss the yes. existence of it and yes. so it almost feels like it went undetected and unprobed for so long because of yeah that. and a lot of those scenes are verbatim that that scene with the doctor someone goes to their doctor for advice on a, on each mm. other and he literally closes it down yeah he's, he's, it's a woman so he says this is nothing to do with you and moves on and i think there were some corners of great britain where you could have that conversation today but um yeah it's it, it's funny you know along comes a virus i look i look very opportunistic and it's like we've got scenes of ppe and distancing and isolation
isolation and and this was all written and filmed long before the virus we we finished filming a month before the lockdown so wow. none of us knew it was coming i mean some ways that looks it's interesting. I worry it'll act against the series because, um, because you know, we get virus all day long. The news is full of it. And do you want to switch on to Channel 4 at 9 o'clock and see more virus? I hope you do. Please do. <laughs> but um, and it, and although it's very different, no, that was a disease. There was so much fear and shame over AIDS in because it was it, – well, it's not only sexually transmitted, but it seemed to be yeah. at the time and largely by many people sexually transmitted amongst the gay male population. So um, with that comes fear, with that comes shame, with that comes stigma. i got to say, though, I mean, there are identical things happening today. I mean, now we've got a government that can't deliver food to hungry children. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. So they're not exactly handling this pandemic much better. And there's also – there's st- it's still every virus comes along and we realise that Whitehall does not care and is not ready to help us. It's very interesting how I thought how um, Richie is a cl- is, is a is a denier, isn't he? Of initially yeah. at least yes. of of the of the virus, as there are as there are COVID deniers now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he's more justified. I mean, I think that right. he's got a great big speech about 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 his denial of the virus. That made sense at the time. I put that yeah. in because that's one of the things I wanted to put in that I hadn't seen in other age dramas, where we simply refuse to believe it. I mean, now if we don't believe the virus now, you're an idiot. But back then, you were told there is a virus that only affects gay men. It's a gay flu that can become a gay cancer and kills the gays. I mean, it sounds utterly ridiculous. Yeah. You cannot blame people then for not believing that. That, that. It sounds like a plot. And then it was called a plot. And of course, a lot of people said it was God had created it to strike us dead. And there's still, you wait every bunch of American elections every four years, some Republican senator still stands up and says that to this day. Mm. One of the Democrats this time says that AIDS stood for angel in disguise because it's taking you to a better place. I mean, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> it's like the amount of nonsense that is spoken. So, um, yeah, 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 same old thing. It's history just repeats and repeats and repeats, doesn't it? Um, you mentioned the AIDS wards and there is a real unflinching representation of, of the physical um, suffering that goes along with um, an AIDS diagnosis, especially at that time. I found that incredibly moving and devastating. And and previously, I thought it was funny when you mentioned Mark Fowler because a lot of the criticism at the time was they showed him really healthy and then had him kind of die off screen. And can yes, you talk about the yes. importance of showing um, what it was like to, to live with and die with? That is interesting because I wonder if we're flinching. Actually, I'm glad you called it unflinching because I worry that we could have gone a lot further. I mean, that the awful thing about that virus is that it presents in so many different ways. You can get every illness under the sun. It's an immune deficiency. Your mm. immune system goes. So I toyed long and hard with that, with, with being honest and raw, but actually not not fetishi- fetishizing it and also, and also not pushing viewers away. It's actually my mm. job to watch people, to, to bring people to watch it and say, mm. come and join in with this. So um, I was very careful. I remember we had a debate about thinness because very typically one of the symptoms is you'd get thin. You know, you simply waste away like mm. a cancer. And, you know, some productions do that. Sometimes you spend money on special effects to make, to make your characters look thinner. Sometimes you put a pause in production so they have a month off and they go on a medically controlled diet. I always mm. remember it was Adam. It was it Anne Hathaway on Les Miserables who who lost all that weight and very marvellously said, every interview said, how did you lose the weight? And she said, I'm not going to tell you how I lost the weight because I have teenage followers, girls, yeah. who will copy that. And I was I was very aware of having um, um, Ollie Alexander in a lead role 
And I thought it was very thin anyway, but I thought, I don't want to see articles about how thin he got and how how we did that and how we achieved that on screen. Mm. Because the screen just can glamorize things sometimes. Mm. It can become, for some people out there, that becomes the thing they can want to be. So we didn't do thinness. Um, yeah. So so we were, we did flinch in some senses. We did kind of mm. look away from that. But nonetheless, it's... It's 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 a disease that you know it, it exists in bodily fluids. This thing it is transmitted physically, and uh, you know it, it's not in the air like the coronavirus is. It and so the drama needs to get onto that physical level. Right in the very first episode, there's a sex mm. scene that, my goodness, goes into some detail about <laughs> sex and what and how to have sex and what to do as a gay man <laughs> when you're having sex. And that's that's not me being prurient or having a laugh. That's me saying, oh, come down here, bring the camera down. This is where we are with the. Fl- fluids and the sweat and the and the passion and the lust mm. and the and your behavior how you how you have sex how you learn how to have sex that's where the camera and the narrative needs to be is right there so yeah they look like i know i know sometimes my things look like it's trying to shock and i'm not shocked i think i think you need to be in there with that stuff mm. yeah going back to quiver's folk in the very first episode it reminded me like a, a very interesting that we've gone from that um yes. rimming scene in quiver's folk to <laughs> this scene say it. in your first episode which kind of is a different spin shall we say yes with the, with the passing of the years maybe yeah. i've grown up slightly over 21 years <laughs> <laughs> and yet no, i just think it shows i haven't grown up at all still obsessed with the ass. <laughs> That'll be my next piece in ten years' time. Please invite me on to discuss obsessed with the arts. You've got to get down to it. But I guess the difference now in making this from Crusoe is intimacy coordinators, isn't it? That, that, that's the yes. whole new thing, isn't it? And did, did you, how did you find working with that? element of it. Amazing. I mean, I, I don't go on set those days. I didn't on Queer Folk and I didn't on this. It's like, how embarrassing. How embarrassing <laughs> to have a sex scene being filmed. And um, But now the intimacy coordinator exists and we all, we stand there amazed that we didn't do things this way. I've got to say, with the with the Queer Folk sex scenes, they were very carefully done and talked through with the actors. I did actually go to a rehearsal of that, a fully clothed rehearsal to talk through exactly what was happening. And um, because I was the one gay man in the room actually kind of explaining what, what was going on there. Um, so it's it. I would I would hope it's always been carefully done. You do hear stories from some sets where it's not so carefully done, and now it's not. It's not necessarily a rule. I don't think there's a law in place, but actually, and maybe maybe equity should insist that there's a rule mm. in place saying this should happen because it just relaxes everyone suddenly. All the pressure's gone, and the actors can say whatever they want. They can, you know, they don't have to be brave. There doesn't have to be any bravado. All that machismo goes out the window. It's an honest conversation about bodies and cameras and what you're willing to do. It's just brilliant. It's simply a better way to make things. And it's joyful sex. I think I I loved that because often, especially if it's an age drama, sex is um, uh, in corners and and has this veil of danger hanging over all sexual encounters within it. But there is some of the most joyful beautiful sex I can remember seeing on screen. Oh, thank you. But that, that's it. And that, that's that's actually the whole show, which is the, mm. it's a show about death and it's a show about terrible things happening to young people. And I wanted to show the lives being lived. It's, it's, mm. it's not that the death is the full stop. You want to spell out the sentence that, that builds up to it. And and that's what it was like. You know, it's the 80s. It's fun. They're, they're 21, they're 25. The, the, the 
drama actually follows 10 years. It goes from 1981 to 1991. So you see them coming out and coming of age and finding themselves and they're actors. So I have enormous fun with that. There's, I got to write a West End musical. I got, there's an ITV daytime soap. <laughs> there's, um, uh, there's Doctor Who, Doctor where someone who. gets a part in Doctor Who and yeah. fights the Daleks. Um, so I got to have enormous fun, which is all, it's not me tap dancing and showing off. That's me making it watchable. I'm literally reaching into my bag and using every trick, every device, every gimmick, everything I've got in order to make this watchable and not miserable, partly to draw an audience in, to get people to watch, but also in fairness to those lives, to remember those lives that, you know, now I think of the people we lost and I think of us laughing. I think of us having such a good time. And that's what I wanted to recreate. So Mm. thank you. I'm glad you got that. Mm. Thank you. I mean, it's interesting you put Doctor Who in there because I love the fact that you brought Doctor Who back having come from being a lifelong fan of that show and being someone who wrote in critiques of episodes and things like that. Like what, what, is the equivalent now like what do you watch now what are the kind of shows that uh, do you still watch science fiction stuff is that still oh god yes, yes i mean don't forget i put i put doctor who into queer as folk k9 appears in queer as folk <laughs> and that directly led to me my name being associated with it so the bbc asked me to bring back queer as folks so it's funny how well you know it's my narrative and i can see that but yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's like now i fell in love with star trek for the first time with star trek discovery i've always liked ah. star trek so I've what did you think it. specifically of this series and the queer representation in that well i'm mainly talking about the first two series because i thought i thought, I thought this third series fell apart Slightly, yes, I agree with you entirely. <laughs> everyone's working a pandemic. And I love the queer represent. Those two yeah. characters were fantastic in it. Um, and about time, I've got to say. And, but before that, series one, um, you know, um, the, 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 the gay characters right from the beginning yeah. were yeah. fantastic. That's not why I loved it. I loved it because I thought it had, well, their queerness was part of its energy mm. and newness. And Michael Burnham, oh my goodness, what a character. <laughs> and um, and I got so excited because I thought the third series, the only thing, I'm, you know, there's a reason why I'm a Doctor Who viewer and not a Star Trek viewer is that Star Trek to me is the military. It's mm. being a soldier. And I much prefer Doctor Who, who doesn't work for anyone, doesn't pay taxes, he doesn't have any responsibilities, <laughs> just gets in his box and flies away. I think it's much more British in that sense. <laughs> so I was so excited when Star Trek Discovery went to the, the 30th century yeah. in order to escape the Federation, only to discover a smaller Federation in which they have to queue up for 10 minutes every week to ask permission to go on a mission. I, I was sitting there going, and all right, they're in a room with no chairs. I don't care. <laughs> please don't do this to me okay. I shouldn't criticise it's terrible you got me I didn't come on here to criticise other people's pieces of work because well, I, I also know that was put together in a pandemic and I still love it and I will yeah. be back next year I think it's the most brilliant cast I mean that show famously puts together great casts great ensembles yeah. and my God, everyone on board that ship is Michelle Yeoh all of them yeah. wonderful love it yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I was I was less fond of this motion. In fact, yeah. this kind of takes us into our first section, which is what we've been watching. And does Star Trek Discovery, I talked about this last week, the finale of that I did think was a letdown. As you say, they did kind of put this together in a difficult time, but I yeah. felt a little bit like after an incredibly strong first season and a great second season, this one maybe didn't live up to its yeah. potential. I think episode one, season episode season one, episode, is it 13, where they escape from the mirror universe, is I think the most exciting hour of television I have ever seen in my life. I will never yeah. be better. I, it was so exciting. I stood up in the room on my own. And when shouted the Klingon. When the Enterprise is flying towards the... the, the, the has, oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is a ferocious piece of work. So, yeah, I will always love it because of that. It will always have the chance to get back to that yeah. potential. Yeah. So what have you been watching over 
over the last week? My oh well, my favourite show in the world has just ended, which is Beat the Chasers. Yes, I love Beat yes. the Chasers. <laughs> oh god, I mean, there's, the, there's the show that gets you <laughs> yeah. shouting out loud. It's oh, amazing, god, that isn't countdown. it? Yeah. Oh, I love it. I what genuinely love it. And yeah. they should just commission 365 yeah. episodes of that. They've shown it works without an audience. God, I love that show. <laughs> and I've been I've been watching the Pembrokeshire Murders. I was really impressed yes. by that. I'm actually yes. I'm here in Swansea at the moment and to, to to see something so authentically Welsh. I always rattle on about authentic gays and casting gay as gay. That was a drama that cast Welsh as Welsh, mm. which you don't see. Yeah. And literally I want to see here is what people are buzzing with that show, quite apart from how brilliant it was, but it felt right. It felt good. And it looked beautiful. It made Wales look beautiful. And and what a monster that man is. Mm. Uh, really great tally. Luke Evans being extraordinary. I mean, that I loved it. Yeah, it is incredibly rare, isn't it, for a, for an yeah. entirely Welsh um, group of characters to be played by Welsh people? It's unbelievable. Yeah. Rare. rare. You just don't see it, and that proved that it works. Um, you know, a friend of mine played played the murderer's wife, Caroline Berry. She was wonderful in it, and it's so great to see her in a leading role. Brilliant. And you've got, of course, Callum Callum in your in your show, who's very very Welsh. I, well, I always try and put a bit of Welshness in. Yeah, we've got an actor called Callum Scott Howells, who's the most delightful actor in the world. Um, um, with the strongest Welsh accent. I think it's a Triorki accent. I remember he walked into the audition and I thought, everyone else is going to say no because they can't, they won't understand a word he says. <laughs> Fortunately, everyone went, oh my God, yes, that's it. Because it is, I wanted, I literally wanted a very strong Welsh accent because you often get the, the softer, musical, palatable Welsh accent on there. And he's broad. There's yeah. a great woman called Andrea Doherty who plays his mother. Um, my friend Carolyn Berry's in that as well. She comes in and plays a doctor. Um, I get the Welsh in there. <laughs> and also it, it felt right because It's a Sin is largely based on friends of mine who went to London in 1981, lived in a, in a place called, a flat they called the Pink Palace. They were all Welsh. So I had to get some Welsh people in. They just mm. felt right to get that rhythm and that voice in there. Yeah. His story, his, his story is, is incredible. And, and oh, show, he's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, he's, he was still yeah. at college as an actor. He was wow. still at Welsh College of Music and Drama studying, studying drama, and would take a week off and come and film with us and then go back. And, and what a career he's got ahead of him. I love yeah. him. Yeah. Absolutely. Good stuff. Yes, no, I f- I'm still ploughing through the Pem- Pembrokeshire Murders. haven't finished that one yet, but I am enjoying it quite it's a lot. Better, every episode, actually, gets yeah, better and better yeah, and better. So yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm excited Wonderful. about that. I'm liking ITV's current run of sort of true crime things. It's, uh, wow, it's, they it's a nice counterpoint. In, don't they? It, it's yeah. a bit ghastly, and, and yeah, but you can't help it. I love it. <laughs> they get six, six and a half million viewers or something. It's huge. Yeah, yeah, huge. Mm. It's biggest ITV launch of a drama for two, two and a half years or something like that. Good. Yeah. Yeah, Boydy, what have you been watching? Um, I agree with about Pembership Murders. I thought it was excellent, and there was a whole. I I, I tweeted about how you know because people do are saying ITV loves a, a true crime drama. I actually think every all the major channels, of BBC One, has a lot of yeah. true crime these days. It's, people love it. That's that all you know. People are fascinated by those stories, and I think mostly, I think the Pembership Murders was made in a very tasteful and yet incredibly mm. dramatic and, and and entertaining way. So I think that it's absolutely valid to tell those stories if you're careful. It was about interesting. It. Did you? Did you see the documentary about the, yes. the crimes last yes. night? That was slightly less careful. Right, I, I agree. It had shotguns I and bullets, and, and you went, ouch. Actually, the drama had been so the, sensitive. Right, it's whether the mm. documentary ends up being cheesier than the, the, than the drama, which is never in any way cheesy or, or exploitative. Drama always has to go through more compliance than anything else. Right. And that's why drama right. very rarely puts a foot wrong. You know when you get disasters at the BBC and disasters at ITV, phone-in scandals, stuff like that? It's very rarely drama because we go through layer and layer and layer right. of compliance which we complain at but it makes our stuff very strong actually that's so interesting yeah um so apart mm. from that, i've been watching a show called lupin on netflix oh, yes, we've had lots of tweets about this yes what's that this is a show it arrived last week it's one of the often we talk about this on the podcast how netflix has so many 
so much new stuff now. Every week, like one or two shows, probably a film every single week. I think this year yeah. they're doing a, a, a new film is coming out every single week every on Netflix. Every week. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Extraordinary yes. amount of content. Lupin is a a drama, a French drama, although it's co-written by a guy called George Kay, who wrote um, Criminal, you know, the Netflix show, which was all in set mm. in the oh, yeah. um, interrogation room in the police station. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, so he's co-created this kind of update of um, a character, Arsène Lupin, who was created by Maurice LeBlanc, who in France apparently is a very, very famous, almost like Sherlock Holmes level of fame of fictional character, who um, starts out as a thief and then ends up becoming a detective. And in this, um, it, this is a very ultra-modern update of it. And um, it stars Omar Sy as Asan Diop. He's the version of Lupin in the in this show. And he and the whole of the first episode is kind of a is kind of a um, caper, a, a kind of um, a robbery, and which he organises. But then, as the, it also introduces his character, and it goes back to his father, who was framed for a crime, framed for a robbery, and it's a brilliantly made incredibly exciting it's got elements of sherlock in it in in, in a really kind of the, the way it's shot and the soundtrack and the kind of pace of it it's i think you'll love it russell i think you absolutely love it yeah. and um oh my god the, the main guy omar Sy is spectacularly handsome and oh, charismatic lovely. that's all i need right <laughs> charismatic <laughs> and brilliant and it's just a and, and i think people it's just this show that's so good so exciting it's become word of mouth hit already in a, in a week and i think it's like number one even in, even among netflix viewers in america it's already number one wow how do you spell uh, it l-u-p-i-n lupin lupin i thought it was a harry potter spin-off i didn't know what it was right right <laughs> um, but like Ludovic Sanier's in it um, as his ex-wife. Um, Louis Leterrier directed the first couple of episodes. Um, the film director. Oh, it's it wow. looks incredible and it's 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 a phenomenal thing. Yeah. So Lupin. It's only five episodes. Annoyingly, it's Ooh. a ten-episode series, so they've cut into two. Um, mm. So yeah. But that's five juicy hours. To, to get your teeth into. Brilliant. Exciting. Now, Terry missed last week's show where we reviewed Servant. However, Terry's review of Servant has gone up on the Empire website today. Terry, you didn't love it as much as I expected you would, did you? Very, uh, really disappointed. Um, obviously, one of my favourite shows of last year. I thought it was just incredible from the story it told, the way it told it. The filmmaking was impeccable. Um, you know, it made art out of filleting a fish or cutting a bit of meat. <laughs> it was so brilliantly precisely told and I thought it balanced the kind of real human tragedy at the heart of it with this kind of underlying potential supernatural shenanigans really well um, and this one really um, I just felt like they completely threw away the human tragedy that began it all uh, it became much more ordinary in lots of ways none of the kind of um, cinematic flair we really loved about the first season and let's, let me be clear, it's a very, very high bar it set with that first season. I still think um, the performances are incredible. Ron Weasley, I mean, that guy <laughs> is fucking brilliant. That yeah. character is brilliant. Um, I mean, she, Lauren Ambrose, I have to say, it just goes completely hell for leather this time. There's some shots of her face when she's mid-meltdown, <laughs> which she's just extraordinary. But I felt like the, the, the st some of the storytelling and just some of the filmmaking just felt really muted and flat after last season. I when I when By the time I reviewed it, I'd only seen the first seven episodes episodes the seventh episode um really started to turn up the dial on the crazy um and so 
I don't know what's in store for the last three. If actually I watch the last three and, and my my feelings are changed, then I'm actually going to change the review. Um, but that's where I stand at the moment, which is disappointing. But the I have watched a lot over the last couple of weeks because I did have COVID and I was in bed for a week. Um, so as well as 54 episodes of The West Wing, I also have been watching Don't You Start, Married at First Sight Australia. Oh, God. Married at First Sight Australia, which is... (laughs) Married at First Sight, James, you understand this concept, right? I just... This feels a lot like... I don't understand how reality TV has become like CSI, where we're now just getting regional variants of everything. So if it's not enough that we have to deal with this country's version of it, we've now got to have it down under as well. Well, for some reason, and this... I think it was last season this happened, the Australian version is way more explosive, loads more crazy. Um, And so it became this bit of a cult hit last season. So I turned on one and then promptly lost um, a couple of days of my life. Um, All I'll say is, all I'm going to say is, men are terrible. Um, And then the other things I've watched are 24 Hours in Police Custody. There's a two-parter. I think it's called The Black Widow. So brilliantly done. Um, And what I really want to talk about, and we didn't review it because we had too many things to review that week. Boydie covered it in Dispatches is a teacher that oh, Kate yeah. Mara, Nick Robinson. I love that. Did yeah. you see it, Russell? Yeah. I, oh my God. So yes. I thought, I'm just going to watch the first one. Um, I was up until five in the morning. I watched all 10 oh, in yeah. a row. Yeah. I started it at 10 o'clock at night and it got, if I, re- if I remember the reviews right, it was quite mixed mm. in some places and some people yeah. didn't. Yeah, some I mean, American I, reviews were really harsh, yeah. Yeah, really gave it a kick in. Hannah um, Fidel, who'd done the feature film by the same name, um, it's her. She she show ran it and wrote it. Um, Kate Mara is incredible as the teacher who um, has a relationship with her much younger student, played by Nick Robinson, who we all know from help me love simon love simon who is amazing in love simon um i just thought this was brilliant you know you read these stories all the time and they are tabloidy and tacky and tawdry and it's always youngish hot teacher seducers um very young hot student and it's always slightly gross and grim and this handles it so well. She, Kate Mara's late 30s in real, I think she's 37. Nick Robinson's 25. There is a proper age gap, um, very similar to the one they're trying to portray on screen. He's 17 when they meet. I thought the way she told this story and the nuances of the power dynamics, I thought was absolutely brilliant through just like there's one line she says to him the first time they sleep together and it's so clear that she holds the power um but it doesn't let her off the hook but what it does do is it completely authentically portrays the lust that she's overcome by and the um disappointments in her own life that have led her to essentially you know massively abuse her power and break the law and it, i just thought it did such an Im- amazing job of telling the story in a credible way but it wasn't black and white and there are nuances within it and it shows the long-term consequences of such an abuse on power and it subverts all of those things about 
oh, well, how hurt can the guy be because she's a young, hot teacher? What's the big deal? It completely undercuts all that stuff. It tells the survivors and the victim stories in what I feel is a really robust um, and proper way. Uh, I just thought it was, honestly, I, mm. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. One of the biggest surprises I've had in ages. I've been telling a lot of writers to watch it because mm. everyone, you, we all have to write affairs at some point. And there's certain basic scenes in dramas like I love you, I hate you, I want to have an affair with you, I'm having an affair. And this does it so mm. originally. It takes those mm. basic scenes and every time you, it's like you've never seen it before there's a new insight there's a new slant i don't want to give away spoilers but yeah ah, the, the, the <laughs> certain moments and it's plain you know there's no fireworks yeah. there's no tricks there's no reversals there's it just tells the story stage by stage as a piece of clear storytelling it's absolute magic yeah. I love the yeah. I love the husband is so. I thought that's so clever. Yeah. The relationship with the husband who's just irritating enough, and um, you know he wants the drum. <laughs> he buys a drum kit and an old guitar, and he wants and he's to be hot. in a, and he's, he's hot, hot as well. right? And he's quite young and hot, exactly. Yeah. And um, their relationship, I thought, was so convincing that she would still want to have the even hotter, younger, more exciting yeah. thrill of the of the of the boy and the affair. That I thought that was so fascinating. And as you say, new and different, and not at all the cliche of what you'd expect from yeah. a marriage that then the, the woman decide, ends up having an affair in the middle of it. I thought that was so interesting. But explains but doesn't excuse us, yes. which I think is yeah. really important. It, it never justifies what she's doing. But it like, you know, and there are certain things where I'm sure they will have had a conversation about, oh, can we leave this bit in and portray it this way? Because, you know, the, and the lust between them is real, but mm. that doesn't justify it either. But it makes the affair completely credible. The final mm. episode, which really really is about establishing the long-term consequences of that. I mean, Nick Robinson, there's a scene where his his <laughs> face, I mean, that the amount of emotional heavy lifting done in the writing of that scene, I just thought was, I, and I was thinking about it for ages afterwards and I was thinking about how these, these things are normally portrayed in the press and I was just thinking it's the first time I can remember that dynamic is in the female teacher and male student being portrayed in that way in such a um, thoughtful um, but skilled way. I just loved it. And if you haven't seen it yet and you are listening to this, um, it's all on BBC iPlayer. I can't recommend also, it enough. Also, hooray for half-hour episodes. I love that. Half-hour yes. chunks is lovely. Yes. It's a great way to watch something. Yeah, yeah, it works so well, doesn't it? Yeah. I also wanted to mention before, before sorry, James, before you get on to what the fuck you've been watching, um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, because it would have started just when we come out on Sunday on ITV, Finding Alice. I mentioned it last week, mm, um, but I've watched more episodes, which is a red production like Russell's show, um, and it's a really brilliant properly riveting very clever um mainstream itv drama but brilliantly made and um Keely Hawes, who of course is also in Ross, is a, it's a great time for Keely Hawes. I mean, she is astonishing in It's a Sin. So she is the, she, I think she co-created Finding Alice with the writers. Um, clearly she wanted to, you know, she's got to the point where she's so, people love her so much and she's doing so brilliantly that she wanted, a, I think, a showcase for her. And she's got this brilliant role as this woman who, um, in the very first scene, discovers her husband dead at the bottom of the stairs of this lavish mansion, this huge, big, beautifully modern home that he's built that's kind of his life's work and he and, it, and he dies just as he's unveiled it to her and her daughter and it's kind of what happens from there Joanna Lumley's in as her, her mother who's incredibly horrible to her and you're like why is she being so horrible to her daughter it's really 
proper black comedy as well. It's really funny, and yeah, it's all kind of about death and the mystery of what's gone on between in this between in this guy's life. And I thought it's it's so well done, and she is so fantastic in it as a showcase for her. And everyone in it is brilliant. Um, it's it's a really properly great, and just to see that on ITV on Sunday night, I think I think I hope I think it will do really well because it's not. It's not it, there. Is, it's kind of there's a mystery to it. There's a mystery, and what did happen to the guy? Why is he lying at the bottom of the stairs, dead? What happened to him? But it's also a kind of proper non-genre piece. It doesn't feel like a genre piece in any way. Much like um, it's a sin, of course, which isn't a genre piece in any way. Not that, not that I have anything against <laughs> genre pieces. I love genre pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my genre piece of choice this week was finally finishing Vikings, you'd be pleased to know, so you will not be hearing any more about... Russell, have you ever watched Vikings? Uh, no, not a single second, sorry. There's a mere 80 or so, <laughs> 90, maybe 100 hours of it, so, you know, whatever you can fit it in. Uh, this was a History Channel thing, but it's, it's on Amazon at the moment. But uh, the last two seasons, which is what I needed to get through over Christmas, are long season so i watched 40 hours of it in the last month that's a lot of viking um wow it was an interesting one so uh, so michael hurst i've been told i've been told by one of the reasons on twitter whenever i say it's an interesting one it means i'm about to give you a tedious little known fact so that's honestly quite accurate so this is an interesting one because michael hurst who writes this he writes every episode the whole thing and i think he wow. was offered or someone spoke to him about, you know do you want a writer's room for this seriously because you need to have a life and i think he, he didn't like the idea of it he's like no i'm, I'm happy just just steering the ship myself so he's done so much of this stuff and the final season of this and uh, as is amazon's way for some of these shows it's split in two so you get the first half of season six and then we've just had the second half of season six um I was a little disappointed with the second half of season six, and I think mainly because there's quite a, without spoilers, there's quite a churn on characters as this show moves along. And I think when you lose some of maybe the characters that you had got quite invested in and they're replaced with other characters that you're less invested in, especially some of them who are, you know, frankly, former villain characters who are now almost still villain characters. You know, I felt like there was less anchoring me to the show as it went on. That said, it goes to some really interesting places. You know, there's Iceland, Greenland, Vinland, which of course is Newfoundland and Canada. Uh, that turns up in it. And there's a, it has a beautifully understated, almost poetic, slightly philosophical finale where it's not action heavy. It's very, it's very thoughtful. And I thought given that this is a show that has essentially been about people staving in other people's heads with axes for most of it, I thought that was a really interesting tone to leave that show on. I think there is a Vikings Valhalla, which is a prequel show, is is, is being developed. But uh, yeah, I'm going to miss. I will miss my Vikings. How, how many episodes do you say there are of Vikings? Well, the last so seasons four, five, and six have twenty episodes each, so they wow. doubled the length that of those. Is, oh, so when I thought I was gosh. nearly done, I was like, oh, I'm not done at all. <laughs> because interestingly, Russell, you talked about how you, there is a version of It's a Sin where you, where it where it's like a returning series where you have uh, dozens and dozens of episodes. Yes. Now I'm here at the end of it. I, I do sit watching it thinking, God, I could have written a hundred episodes of this. It's like, especially actually, once you get to the wards, once you get to those the wards where people are living and the stories from those AIDS wards were so powerful and pungent and exotic. Mm. Sometimes it's it's like that you'd have you'd have parents visit an AIDS ward if the parents didn't know the son was gay. Everyone, the staff and the patients would all hide the charity posters, the AIDS signs, the HIV posters. They'd hide them. Parents would visit. Parents would go. All the signs and posters would go back up again. Stories like that I never got a chance to dramatise. And drag queens coming onto the ward to sing a song and entertain everyone. Um, yeah, I could have, I could have done more. But 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 listen, I was offered five. Actually, I was offered four, and I got. <laughs> I, I was. I wrote, got to the end of episode two, and then we had to go to Channel Four and beg another episode. Can you imagine if I had? A, if you, you know, you've seen them all. If I had yeah. to compress 
compress all that into four episodes, it would have been would have been a slaughterhouse. Um, so um, I'm very glad I got what I got in the end. I can't complain. Russell, can I ask you a question about God? Yeah. Specifically, Christopher Eccleston as God. So I watched The Second Coming actually relatively recently. It was only about a year or two ago. Really? Where have you yeah, been? Yeah, I came to it. I know, oh right? I remember. I literally remember I was at Empire of the Night. I remember talking about the show when it first aired, which was 2003? Uh, three? Yes, I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. And I remember talking about it, and, and it had been on my list for ages. I finally watched it relatively recently. And the one thing that really stuck to me is Eccleston, who plays Stephen Baxter in this, who is essentially the son of God on the show, there seems to be a lot of Doctor Who in that performance. <laughs> it's funny, like, there's a it? specific scene where he's going down the street setting off cars alarms. I was like, this is the Doctor. Oh, I'd forgotten that scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, when one did lead to the other, in a way. Yeah. Do you know, I made that drama too soon. It's like, imagine if we had Red and Chris, and we made that for Netflix. That would be 20 hours long. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. with the Netflix budget, it's like, I mean, yeah. it's a lovely piece of work. And I'm very proud of that. And it kind of gets forgotten these days, because can you believe that went on ITV? That's yeah. not, that ITV put that out. And, it, you know, for those who haven't seen it, it is about the return to Earth of the Son of God, and it really <laughs> is the son of God and it's tough yeah. and the ending God is murdered at the end I murdered God on ITV <laughs> because God is wrong and um, my God well would you get that on Netflix would they insist on a happy no I, I think you could actually Um, I do yeah it's the one thing I've made that I wish God I should have sat on that idea for um for 20 years and then now it's it only two huge. episodes isn't it like it's really condemned yeah 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 it's, it's three hours long two 90 minute episodes so um yeah, that was written as three hours, and they made us chop it into two nineties or something. Something happened yeah. there, like they do. Um, but no, I'm immensely proud of that. I mean, there are miracles. There are great big miracles where he turns night to day in the middle of the football ground, and he's so and, cheeky about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That pub blowing up, a pub yes. blows up, and no one is hurt. Everyone just yeah, sits there. Like, maybe a second miracle. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, I'm going to watch it myself. <laughs> I can hardly remember it, but very proud of that. Very proud. Yeah, and didn't didn't you get some some I don't know if there were death threats, but did you get some complaints over that? Obviously, the subject matter is quite we a got testy one. Th- reactions to that than anything else. Do you know the number one reaction to that was plagiarism? Where um, well, because the Bible uh, ever, <laughs> exactly you named the Bible, but also it seems like every writer and every producer has a second coming idea in their heads. And we had Nicola at one point had established producers phoning her up in tears, saying, "You've stolen my idea." And you see, the kid, it's actually kind of public property, this thing. And also, also, why didn't you make it then? You know, yeah. it's, uh, just because you've got an idea in the back of your head doesn't mean I've stolen it. I, I don't exactly look short of ideas, do I? It's it's so. Uh, it was very odd, but actually we thought there'd be a tidal wave of death threats and, and, and strong reactions. But actually we were beaten on BBC One by Nick Berry in deep. So there we go. Oh, my God. Let's all wow. remember that show. I love wow. Nick Berry. Come back. Come back, Nick Berry. Come back and make yeah. shows. What a beautiful Every man he was. Every loser wins <laughs> That's the one. the dream begins. Harbour Lights. I was asked to write Harbour Lights at one point. I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> He was like the biggest star in the country, wasn't he? I mean, he was massive. He was, he was huge. He was a good actor. He's a nice man, yeah. by all accounts. Uh, yeah. yeah. So what's, I mean, when, when you saw him doing the Baxter performance, is that what sort of sowed the seed of what, he would bring to the doctor. Was no, that- it's funny. It's kind of coincidence. I think I probably what you're probably kindly saying is that I write everything the same. 
thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, that is, it is a great big heroic lead role with magic, you know, but yeah. it's, 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 it's divine power, uh, in the second coming. It's being a time lord in, in, in Doctor Who. So, um, there, there wasn't a straight line though. It's like at the time, no one would, no one imagined that Chris would have wanted to be Doctor Who on BBC One. I didn't. He contacted me mm. saying, let's do this. And he was glorious and completely, you know, within the industry, professionally reinvented what Doctor Who could be mm. and its yeah. potential and its budget. That affects the budget. That affects the its slot. That's affected publicity. You know, at a time when when we announced the return of Doctor Who in two thousand three, people were, the papers were saying, "Oh, Paul Daniels could play him." Paul Daniels. I mean, that's that's how low the program's reputation wow. could possibly ever have been. It comes been. with a um, built-in assistant. It's though, true. It? That's very true. <laughs> Debbie McGee. God bless her. <laughs> Two friends of mine once went filming with Paul McGandles and Debbie McGee at home, and they had the nicest time in the world. They said he was the well, as a children say, they said they had such a good time with him, and he was absolutely wonderful to them. So no slagging off of Paul Daniels here, no. but nonetheless, <laughs> he's not Doctor Who. Yeah. I think we can safely say so. You know, Chris single-handedly saved the role, saved and established mm. what is still running. Yeah, where am I now? Sixteen years later, yeah. sixteen yeah. years, and I haven't aged. That's the thing. I am I'm very strongly a Trekkie rather than a Whovian myself. It's okay. But Goodbye. I, I watched Doctor Who from the oh god, up to the Sylvester McCoy era, I think, hmm. way, way back in the day. I saw some Tom Baker and some people. So I did certainly watch it as a kid. But I mean, to take that, which was an established sort of property that had been around for so long, and to essentially turn it on its head and be very clear about what you did and didn't like about it and what you thought could be changed mm. I mean, it's an incredibly bold thing to do so right we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take the length we're gonna double it you know we're gonna set it on earth like no one gives a shit about gallifrey that can go out the window you know it's a sort of streamline it like where did all that come from did you just have such strong feelings about what you wanted doctor who to be well yes in, in some ways it was easy and it wasn't easy it was hard work it's always hard work but but i i did know exactly what i wanted to do it's very interesting that you know, programs develop. We 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 watch them fervently. We we see how they change from episode one to episode one hundred. Actually, you watch episode one of our revival. That's the show. It never changed from that point onwards. We got it. We got it. We got the the mm. companion, uh, Earth, the Doctor, the magic, the fun, the jokes, the threats, the scare. We got it. And actually, I simply put that down to as being a lifelong fan. I mean, that program had forty years of research. 40 years I walked around playing with Daleks in my head and imagining things blowing up and and and, that, and the producer Phil Collinson was a very old fan as well and we literally knew what we're, but Phil was the most marvellous producer you always used to say about science fiction a production ruined by a hat because someone walks in in a silly hat and you've gone you've lost the audience and then and, and they do walk in in silly hats you really have to be careful it's it's that you know you go to that Star Trek Discovery you go to that cave of the trills I'm off I've got the kettle on don't give me a magical cave with twinkly lights in the wall I've gone literally I was I'm adamant on, on Doctor yeah. Who we will never do that village full of peasants saying a metal bird landed over the mountain. Because they all and they're all wearing, you know, tabards and and yeah. and, and, and brown. Star Trek one oh one. Literally forbidden. And everyone used to come in with that script. I go, no, 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 not doing it. Because it's rubbish. So you just you activate your rubbish sensors really. And it's funny one, Doctor Who, because because actually your centers need to be finely tuned because Doctor Who is fun and it's more fun than any other science fiction franchise. Yeah. So yeah. when you you might have a radar that's on 
on the lookout for rubbish, but actually you need to open the door and welcome in great big green monsters tumbling through the door, spitting and hissing, and maybe they've got wings or they dissolve things and they get blown up by lemon juice. You know, it's 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 <laughs> it's that franchise. It's I was so proud of taking that to you. Know, we were number one in the ratings. And you know, that's it's very rare for a science fiction show to do that. And it's almost impossible for a show that's full of lasers and green monsters and big gags. That that was that was such an achievement, frankly. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, because yeah. Doctor Who wasn't you, you turned you turned your revival of it turned it into one of the, the biggest things in the world as well, huge in America. And it wasn't like that when it, the original in the no, original it had a lovely devoted faithful audience. I think yeah. that I, I honestly believe that faithful audience could always see the version that we now see on screen. To us, it was yeah. always full of... Uh, right. I've got a jigsaw from 1964. It's in my house in Manchester. It's a jigsaw of William Hartnell and some Daleks. But in the jigsaw, in 1964, the Daleks are attacking London. There are jet fighters in the sky wow. and there are explosions yeah. and there's little William Hartnell with a cane doddering towards <laughs> the TARDIS. And you think, God, in 1964, that's what it was in people's minds. Technology's yeah. now caught up yeah. with it and we can show those jet fighters yeah. and explosions. But it was all always that so the true faithful viewer always knew mm. yeah true and uh that billy piper did well didn't she from from your cast yeah, she's all right as and i hate she's done all right. i hate susie just amazing oh my god Incredible. i watched it again i watched it again did I think you? Did, didn't you? yeah over christmas yeah. um it was even better the second time because i think saying you missed things some that of haven't the... been said saying things yes. that have not been when yes. you let women cast women write women in a women's production astonishing things come out don't they amazing yeah Time now for a quick break, but we'll be back in a few short moments after this message from our sponsor. Let us, at this point, address this week's question. Colin Woodley's question is waiting for us, and Colin asks us all, what do you predict will be your top three TV shows of 2021? Hmm... Mm. A difficult question, this one. Mm. There's a lot coming out this year. Yes, so I so, will start. Okay. Um, it's Sin, obviously. <laughs> Shut up. Um, so I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you my longish list, and then I'm going to answer the question. So how, how many am I going to have to disqualify to stop this? Yeah, this is. I have. I have abided by the rules. Um, so it's a sin, euphoria. Killing Eve, Line of Duty, and Help are on my longish list. Now, hang on, hang on. You didn't like Killing Eve, the most recent uh, series. Like, I thought you drifted me. Have away. I finished? Sorry, I'd finished. Okay, so here are here are my three. We're going to say, well, we're just going to say it's a sins included. Um, we we will come around to reviewing it later. Um, but Line of Duty, because I've talked many times on on this show about my deep and abiding love for Line of Duty. There is yet to be a season of that show that they haven't absolutely nailed in a completely different and original way to every other series. I cannot wait. Um, I think Jed's a genius. Now, my second is. I, I was torn between Euphoria and Killing Eve because, as you know, I was slightly disappointed by the last season of Killing Eve. However, mm. I think um, the first season of Killing Eve is one of the greatest series of the last 20 years of anything. So I think if Killing Eve can kind of get over some of the bumps they had last season, I and as we know, they have a new uh, showrunner every season then I think that could be really exciting. And same with Euphoria in that, obviously, I loved season one, but 
um, I wasn't mad about the special um, that we reviewed, mm. as you know. So I, both of those things I absolutely adore. And if they really hit their stride again, um, fingers crossed. But my third is a hard third, which is help, which is uh, the Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer um, drama, which I think is going to end up on Channel 4. Yeah. Um, now, this is uh, set in a fictional care home. He is a patient. She is a carer. Um, and it's about their relationship set in times of COVID. I am, in principle, anti-COVID shows because I've got too much COVID in my actual life. <laughs> Please don't bring it into my imaginary fantasy life where I like to escape to. But you know how I feel about Stephen Graham. I think he is mm. actually one of our greatest living actors. Um, and Jodie Comer is a remarkable actor as well. They've got an amazing relationship. I think she thanked him when she won the BAFTA because he'd, I think he'd actually like referred her to her agent. I think he's mentored her a little bit at the start of their career. Both Scousers, obviously, um, must know each other, probably cousins. Um, but <laughs> so I think, I think that's going to be amazing because I think those two are brilliant. I think they could have incredible chemistry. Um, the premise sounds really engaging, and you know, I. Every time there's a Stephen Graham drama on our tellies, it ends up in my top five of the year. So statistically, mm. science says um, <laughs> that is in my top three. And it's a Jack Thorne, uh, Jack Thorne piece. Um, oh yeah, I mean, yeah. there you go. Like, yeah. what more do we want? I mean, yeah, it is the dream, dream scenario. I've been Shane Meadows, and it's like already at number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I also have Line of Duty. I mean, I, I spoke to Jed a couple of weeks ago for Empire, and um, just him, just talking to him for about twenty minutes about what he's got in store. And obviously, he's not. He, he's so. I mean, he will not tell you anything at all about it. I mean, quite rightly, because yeah. Line of Duty, you want to know as little as possible. But just him talking about um, how he finds new ways to to new takes on this formula, because it is a formula, that show. You know, a different, a new lead, mm. um, guest lead every time. And then it, the question is, are they bent or are they, you know, what to what extent are they criminal themselves and are they corrupt? And that's it, really, apart from the incredibly dense tissue of... Um, um, interconnecting subplots and characters and all of that, and H, who is H, and who are the who are the um, balaclava men, all of that. But just hearing him talking about with great joy, actually, he really loves. He just is excited for everyone to see this second, this this sixth se series, which has been a long, long time in the making because they had to stop filming because of COVID for a, 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 quite a few months. Um, it's just incredibly exciting. Kelly McDonald is that new lead, and she every every person, of course, Stephen Graham was in it. Every every person they cast yeah. as those guys, they're just as soon as you hear. The yeah. casting, you're like, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I want to see <laughs> Kelly McDonald in the Line of Duty series, and now we're going to see that happen, and I can't wait for that. My other two are, um, I'm, I'm really excited about American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson series. It was one of my favorite um, series of recent years. I loved that so much. And the next one that is coming this year is Impeachment. Yeah. Topically enough, about the president who was only impeached once, a mere <laughs> once, uh, Bill Clinton, and um, the Monica Lewinsky story. And originally, um, this wasn't going to go ahead because um, they, they they hadn't got permission from Monica Lewinsky to make it. And they thought, well, if, we, if, she, if she doesn't want us to do this story, then we won't do it. Then she changed her mind and, and said, no, it's fine. Um, I trust you. She's um, excellent on Twitter, by the way. She is brilliant is she? on Twitter. Yeah, she's mm. fantastic. <laughs> so the Beanie Feldstein is playing her, I mean, who I love. Oh, the casting. Wow. 
is so exciting. Sarah Paulson as Linda Tripp um, and Clive Owen as Bill Clinton. <laughs> I, 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 exactly. Russell's face. <laughs> wow. like, oh, that's okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not, you wouldn't expect it, would you? But, and yeah, I really wow. want to see Clive Owen's Bill Clinton. And I just want to see this Ryan Murphy version of this story um so yeah i can't wait for that i'm incredibly excited about that and my other one is nine perfect strangers which yeah. is the next david e kelly really? nicole kidman yeah from the leanne moriarty uh book yeah Russell's not so. Oh, Russell's not so I gave up after three chapters. That's a load of rubbish. Oh, really? Oh, I haven't read the book. Oh, no. It's rubbish. <laughs> rubbish. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, they'll make That's it annoying. brilliant. And everyone will watch it and say, this is what it's all about now. And millions of dollars will be poured into it. And blah. But Big Little Lies was great, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Um, in fairness, yeah, so I'm, that's well, why. That's series. the only reason why. Yeah. I'm like from the outside. I haven't read the book, I, I, so it's like a. It's the same team as Big Little Lies. The same author. The same adap adapter. The same, uh, you know, Nicole Kidman there, and Melissa McCarthy, and Luke Evans. You know, incredible cast, obviously, and Michael. It Shannon. reads like a suddenly successful author being asked for her next book. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Okay. How interesting. Oh, well, that, that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. But before before I knew the book was shit, I was not wait for this. <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> Russell, what are you looking forward to? I am looking forward today to WandaVision, which... Um, yes. Have you seen mm. it? It's like, it's simple. Yes. have. From the mm. outside, it's... What I love about this is it's so mysterious. I have no idea what it's about. Tons of publicity, and it's mm. a complete mystery. That's very nice situation to be in and i like marvel stuff i'm i'm a fan of all that so and then that's a brilliant cast but i don't know what i'm going to be watching they're in sitcoms somehow so that's yeah. that's let's get off the line please because i'm going to go and watch it and uh, <laughs> yeah. it's really exciting i'm also of course i'm looking forward to line of duty and uh, to, to, I'm, there's more gentleman jack this year Joanne jones mm -hmm. i love that Ooh. show yeah that's exciting that's being shot now that's been delayed for about six months that's on its way and while i'm on a suran jones uh festival it's fun. i just fancy this vigil coming up it's her investigating mm. crimes on a submarine which kind of isn't normally yes. i think but it just sounds great actually well she's in it that means it's great and oh, angelie mahindra's in it all sorts of people in it and directed by james strong who's a brilliant director and i just you know there's a good old thriller that sounds the submarineness of it sounds marvelous. So um, yeah, I'm, so I'm looking Jones, forward to that. Hang on, hang on. Yeah, Saran <laughs> Jones in a submarine solving yeah. crimes. Yeah, Crimson Tide with Saran Jones. That would run for ten years, oh won't it? Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, I yeah. am so here yeah. for that. She could like replace. She could replace Miss Marple. She could turn up. She could serve as a Mary Mead. <laughs> Yeah. And step out to solve it. That'd be great. Wouldn't it be great in Midsummer Murders if you arrived by submarine every week? <laughs> I mean, yes, it's a great format. And if it's not the format of Vigil, I'll have it. <laughs> Thank you. What a world. What a world. <laughs> um, there is a lot coming out this year. I mean, you mentioned the Marvel stuff. We've got Falcon and Winter Soldier coming yeah. before long. Loki, which looks absolutely demented mm. and brilliant before the end of the year. I think Hawkeye might be coming this year as well. Mm. Star Wars stuff kicking off. Obviously, the book of Boba Fett starts at the end of the year. Bad Batch is coming too. So, it's, I mean, it's it's a pretty it's good year for me with, with TV. Um, what else am I looking forward to? Unforgotten Season 4, I think, is issue. I love Unforgotten. Mm. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah. Really looking forward to that. Obviously, Line of Duty. Um, I am looking forward to Why the Last Man, which I think is going to make an appearance this year. <sighs> 
Uh, have you ever read the comic, Russell? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah. I was yeah. involved for a pitch trying to make that on telly at one point. Oh, and really? I got, oh, yeah, oh, as, as was everyone. I got very excited. But I love it. I yeah. love it. What a great piece of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's been trying to come onto screen for so long. I'm desperate to see what they make of it. Mm. So that, that one's coming to Hulu in the States. I don't know who's getting it over here. Uh, unless if it's Hulu, maybe it'll appear on Star, which obviously kicks off soon. Um, the Wheel of Time is coming to Amazon this year. I'm very excited to see what they make of that. So that's one. As is Lord of the Rings, which we're talking about a bit in news, the Amazon's incredible lavish Lord of the Rings TV series is coming uh, and in a uh, science fiction uh, bent ATV have got uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation coming as well which is a batshit story set over <laughs> thousands of years how that's going to work on television I genuinely don't know um, I'm hoping to see some more Fort Salem and Warrior Nun at some point if uh, the gods are smiling uh, and sex education is coming back this year has been delayed we would normally oh, yeah. get it at the beginning of the year that's going to be later on as well but but my top three of 2021 which I'm prepared to stand by right here right now at number three season two of C on Apple TV that's going to be a uh. stormer uh, at number two, season two of The Witcher on Netflix. I've had to wait uh, oh, an extra really? year for that one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, love really. The Witcher. Did you not love it? Did you no. not sing the song? He has a bath sometimes. I liked it when he had a bath. <laughs> <laughs> he does have a bath. He does have a bath quite often, in fairness. <laughs> Just need to have yeah. a bath every episode and it'll be, it'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're on board with it. Yeah. Well, uh, There's also a bit where a lot of people turn into eels, but we don't talk about that episode. Um, and at number one, of course, will be the sixth and final season of The Expanse. Russell, have you ever watched The Expanse? I got a bit bored. I'm sorry. No! I know. I'm sorry I gave up after about four episodes. I'm sorry. People keep telling me how brilliant it is. And I do love it's that Stephen Strait. I think he's a really, yeah. really great actor. Actually, I love him. So, so I need to... Yes, all right. All right. I'll do my Vikings. <laughs> I'll do my Expanse. You've just written off the next year for me. All right. Yes. <laughs> definitely worth your while. I've, I've, I've watched, I think, the first, I want to say, five or six episodes of this most recent fifth season. And it is an absolute story. It's uh, very deep in the plot. Terry and Boyd watched this series, had no fucking clue what was going on because it really doesn't help you if you're not already uh, an avid watcher. But uh, but it is excellent, excellent science fiction. Did you? Were you a Battlestar fan? Did you watch Battlestar Galactica? The, oh uh, the yeah, yeah, I'm watching yeah. some of these repeats now on Friday night. BBC yeah. Two, love it. What a what a. I even like that ending. People didn't like the ending. I thought I was really yeah. I thought that was really wise and brave yeah. and you know it's not an easy ending to pitch and, uh, no, and to land I thought wow that's really extraordinary yeah great piece of work it's a tricky one isn't it because that kind of evolved in the same way that so many of those network shows do where they have a vague idea of where they want to go but largely <laughs> are making up the mythology as they go along and then trying to wreck on the pieces to make them fit mm. as a writer do you ever find yourself in that situation oh, or are you more of a, a, a long long game I see far into the future person. no I, I make it all up as I go along it's like, <laughs> I, I don't deliver I, I have trouble getting stuff commissions because I don't deliver synopses. Everyone wants the six episode breakdown of what's going to happen. I go, no, no, just let me write it. I'll give them a first episode, first episode of the script. I'll tell yeah. them roughly what's going to happen. But they demand those six A4 pages and I don't. I say, no, we're not going to do it because then I find, um, I mean, my head's full of ideas, but it kind of dies when you have to put it down in prose. And when yeah. you find yourself following your own instructions, it's it's sitting here at this desk you see me at now where it all starts to explode and spin and, and, and evolve. So it's all in the writing for me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that belies how much my brain has actually planned it. It's like I'm making myself sound like some sort of wizard improvising it all. And actually, my brain. I watch so much television. I'm ruthlessly planning everything. Yeah. But don't don't tell them in advance. I want them and the commissioners and the producers to read it like a viewer when they turn mm. the pages. Brand new things happening. Um, the Slack episode five of it's as if no one knew what was going to happen in there. And 
bang, that has never, and you read that from scratch, that's like, kaboom. And that's that's what you want to do to the audience. So do it to the people who are making it. Well, years and years, right? Remember, yeah. I mean, a very um, yes. big shock. I, I remember we <laughs> talked about that on this on this podcast. I, I And we couldn't remember, you know, really the last time there'd been such a oh, in the middle good. of a season shock, yes. which nobody saw coming. That was hard because mm. the, the other one was meant, Victor was meant to die, not Danny. I had, yeah. I had said that to the BBC. I'd sat there going, mm. and then they crossed the channel, they're immigrants on a boat, and, they, and, and Victor dies. And I wrote it. I was here. I was literally in this room, and I went, I wrote it, and it was all done and delivered. I thought, well, that's a bit boring. How is a death a bit boring? And I went and brushed my teeth or something. And, and then I thought, oh, the wrong one's dead. Russell Tovey has to die, which was uh, <laughs> a shock to myself. Then I had to phone up Russell Tovey and say, please, will you just be in four episodes and not six? <laughs> which he was lovely about, but he wasn't instantly lovely. He tells that. His version of that story is very funny, which I'm very pompous and grand. <laughs> darling, his version has me going, darling, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I was actually terrified. If he'd said no, if he'd said no, my agent has booked me for six. I, you know, I bought a new kitchen. I need six episodes worth of money. I would have had to go with the old version, and I, 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 I would have done it out of respect to the actor as well. I think that's mm. that's fair enough. So that was quite a phone call. That one, yeah. I think in what retrospect, moment? yeah, oh, what moment? You. In retrospect, he is absolutely. Um, what Thanks a shot, Simon yeah. and Jones on one shot yeah. coming. So no wide shot. Yeah. That was that yeah. was. Like, I think that's the first take on the rushes. So I sat here wow. and you know it's a Tuesday morning, <laughs> pressed play. On come the rushes. That shot comes in, and I was as startled as the viewer. Well, it was just an amazing piece of work, phenomenal piece of camera work, beautifully done. When you were writing years and years, did you realise at the time you were prognosticating our <laughs> imminent future? Well, I had President <laughs> Trump launch a nuclear missile on his last day of office, so the clock is ticking, love. Oh. <laughs> whether we're going to get there or not. I mean, why wouldn't he? That's yeah. clearly mm. that insane. We're not out of the trees yet. It's like scary. You could never. However, I did write years and years giving him a second term of office. So I think the timelines have separated and we're heading towards a better future somehow. Because that. that would have been. Can I just point out, James? What did prognostic prognosticate? That's why I'm here. Uh, but I, I was thinking about you the other day, Russell, because I was reading about um, these porter cabin camps essentially yes. they're keeping um refugees in and i was reading about another place in wales today where the conditions are um just inhumane and barbaric there's poor yeah. toilets there's people crammed into rooms and can't social distance and i just kept thinking about those scenes in the yeah. porter cabins the in years and years camps. where victor is where he's held and i thought that i that was all i had in my head but they're literally that is something well, that they are now using just imagine the worst things you can imagine a government doing and they'll do it. As I said, they can't get food to starving children this week. Mm. And not only that, they're not only not getting food to starving children, they're ripping them off. Failing to deliver mm. is one thing. Taking the money and running to Tory yeah. donors is quite another. I mean, just think the worst and they'll get there. It was mm. it's easy in that sense. Easy. They will always <laughs> let us down. Oh my word. And that watching the footage of the of the um, insurrection of the fascists in mm. the capital was like a scene you'd have in the background of years and years, wasn't it? It was like one of those things that you'd play out yes. on the news. I'm always wishing for that many extras. Yes, <laughs> I was jealous, jealous of the productions on that thing. How insane! How with an Olympic 
gold medalist in there. Yes. And just, I, you can't make this up. You, if I imagine if I'd written that, and one of the <laughs> one of the Raiders is an Olympic gold medalist, they'd say, Russell, just calm it down. <laughs> yeah, you're arrest, you're you're arrest at the end. Um, I won't say who, just in case somebody hasn't watched it. But your arrest at the end <gasps> gives me hope. Yes. Yeah. If that's why I wrote it, it's like someone is brought to, a, a powerful figure is brought to justice. And yeah. please may that happen. Please, please, yeah. it might. It might. Once we get inquiries into how this epidemic's been handled, then things have gone very wrong. There must be consequences. There must. Um, speaking of consequences, now I'm conscious of the time. Do you need to head I off, don't kind you? Of, I've got Christian Guru Murthy waiting for me yes. on Channel 4. Yes. I can't keep him waiting. said 20 minutes an hour ago. But thank you. Hooray. What enormous fun. Thank you. Um, oh, thank you so I've much. This. It's talking television. Yeah. I could just stay here forever. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, 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 Russell. Thanks so much for coming on. Obviously, It's a Sin does debut on Channel 4 this week at 9pm on Friday twenty. Second, so we recommend everyone watch that. And all episodes drop that night as well. You can step all to one in the morning episodes. and watch the whole thing. Hooray. Which people Amazing. will do because it's so compelling. People I will hope watch so. it. It actually works better yeah. that way because it's not yeah, a show. I agree. It doesn't have great big cliffhangers. There are no reveals. There are no secret yeah. villains. It's about life being lived. So actually, if you watch it in a chunk, you feel the decade passing. I hope. Anyway, thank yeah. you. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you enormously. I've really loved this. Thank you thank so you. much, Russell. Thank, thank you. you. That was Russell T. Davis. Amazing stuff. Uh, and now on to this week's news. Where shall we start, Boydie? Well, remember a little show called Sex in the City? No, tell me about it. There was this show called Sex in the City <laughs> that was a really revolutionary, daring HBO um, comedy about um, four women living in New York and their lives and their friendship and their sex lives. And it was very bold and daring in the way it addressed sex, particularly in relationships. And um, they went on to have make two absolutely terrible films that kind of slightly ruined <laughs> the whole the whole thing. But the actual TV show was brilliant and revolutionary. It was very white, admittedly, um, but that was kind of an issue of the time really now it's being revived but without Kim Cattrall who was one of yeah. the four one of the main four because she fell out with the rest of the cast for various complex reasons but it is absolutely 100% being revived a long rumour long standing rumours that they were going to revive it on TV it's going to be an HBO Max thing Sarah Jessica Parker confirmed it earlier this week in a kind of post and they did like a teaser trailer thing and everything and it blew up and people started arguing about oh you know is Sex in the City better than The Sopranos and this that and the other <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say uh, it was excellent when it's when it first started yes. and it was excellent for most of the run on TV mm. and I am excited about its return even without Kim Cattrall. Yeah, it's not called Sex and the City, it's called And Just Like That. Indeed, but I think I reckon it'll be Sex and City colon and just like that. Yeah, that <laughs> makes sense. Feeling. My strong if, feeling. If this starts with Samantha's, you know, funeral or them talking about how it's so sad, isn't it that uh, sad that she died of cancer for 10 years ago? I'm going to be annoyed. I mean, that will be I spectacular. I don't know if they do that, I have to no. say, because um, uh, because that's kind of... Um, well, I think people think that would be offensive. It couldn't, you know, there, there was a whole thing about Samantha having beaten cancer. There's something a bit distasteful about then just killing her off like that. Um, but I think the important thing here is the initial rumours a few years ago were about a third film. And the films, I want to talk about the difference between the films and the TV show. So the TV show was brilliantly written really bold especially for the time mm. showed women's sex lives like arguably they hadn't been shown before obviously there were issues as Boyd's spoken to you know they are 
rich white women um, living a certain life in Manhattan. You know, there's an amazing whole arc about um, Miranda moving to Brooklyn um, and what a dreadful nightmare that was. <laughs> yeah. um, and the two films, the first film I actually thought was, um, was quite good if you're a fan. The second film got a lot of kickback because it you know it it had some real issues in terms of how it represented other countries um other religions and it wasn't necessarily the um the kind of well-crafted thing i think we'd come to expect from the tv shows so there had been talk of a third film and then it kind of fell apart and kim cattrall wouldn't sign on and i think they'd said at some point that they wouldn't do it if if not all of them would do it however i think the fact they're going back to telly is the important thing for me because that for me feels like it's got a much better chance of being something that we really loved just given a modern fresh update both in terms of the age but also the fact they'll be in their 50s because in the tv show they were 20s and 30s in the films it was all about how you deal with life in your 40s you know um the the final decision not to have kids aging parents all of those considerations whereas now these women will be in their 50s which is an entirely different set of issues um you'd imagine so it's going to be, begin production in the spring they're talking about initially 10 episodes presumably it could go longer more seasons if it's successful um so i'm kind of tentatively excited i always thought that sex and the city suited the tv format better mm-hmm. Um, those brilliant half an hour episodes so i'm really excited even even without the kim cattrall-ness it's a shame i liked samantha she i thought she was great i think there were pay disputes at the time Mm. um sarah jessica parker i believe was paid more um than other cast members and obviously sarah jessica parker became a producer to one of the films I think she exec produced both films. So I think there was um, a financial um, uh, kind of not falling out, because I always hate that language around when women kind of, you know, uh, when their relationship sours, it's always a falling out. But I I think Samantha was always a great um, character and obviously they carved the four of them very specifically into four different types of women to kind of bounce off each other and show slightly different perspectives. Um so it, I think it will be a loss, um, but I'd, I'd, I'd take no Samantha than no Sex and the City, if you see what I mean. Wasn't Miranda yeah. running for governor of New York at one point? In real life. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in real life, yeah. Okay, what else is happening? Now, both of you will clearly be very excited to hear that an official synopsis was announced for Amazon's Lord of the Rings series, which, of course, Terry, you'll be pleased to know, will take place during the fabled Second Age of Middle-earth. So uh, what do you think of that? I mean, you had me at official synopsis. (laughs) (laughs) The synopsis reads, Beginning in a time of relative peace, the series follows an ensemble cast of characters, both familiar and new, as they confront the long-feared re-emergence of evil to Middle-earth. From the darkest depths of the misty mountains to the majestic forests of the elf capital of Linden to the breathtaking island kingdom of Numenor. And then other bits. So, you know, good stuff. Is it though? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> is that? It's. I read the book. The books when I was the book books when I was um young, and I remember being absolutely bored by them. Um, but is all that stuff in the books, James? The answer, Boydie, is yes. If you're very into <laughs> appendices or have read the Silmarillion, right? I mean, 
You Aren't you to... glad you asked? Yeah, I'm glad I asked, yeah. <laughs> but it slightly says it all, isn't it? If they're delving, I mean, I don't know. I I, I don't like to prejudge any. They're I'm sure spending be... like a billion dollars yeah. on this series or something insane are. like that. So if nothing else, the elves <laughs> like are going to look fantastic. a billion dollars. <laughs> like, they're spending like a billion dollars. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if I were to <laughs> prognosticate about that series, I'd say it's probably going to be very good. I believe you said prognosticate. What's wrong with the word I love the fact that he kept a straight face answering you at that. <laughs> I, always, I always wonder what famous people make of you, James. Like, because Probably the same all, thing you do. You are always so completely yourself with everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I would like to now go and ask Russell T. Davis what he thought of you. I think yeah. the word bellend would probably I think he's very fond. I think, I think in many, weirdly, James is like core, you know, Russell T. Davis audience in a way. Like, you know, yeah. in terms of, but, and yet without the Doctor Who knowledge. And yet without the Doctor Who. Yeah. 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 Wow. Anyway. But it's all right, because you got to, um, you get you somehow managed to turn it around to talking about all the things you liked anyway. <laughs> that is always my goal. I'm not particularly a Whovian. I'm more of a, uh, a Trekkie. But, 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 but did you like it? Did you like Battlestar Galactica? What did you think about it? <laughs> uh, yes. Welcome to Do You Like the Things I Like, starring Dan Dyer. Yeah. I, I did, I did, I did, I, I, I leapt for joy when, when Ross said he's never watched a second of Vikings, like <laughs> no, most of the world. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Anyway, you can cut this all out, James. It'll be fine. No, no, yeah, I'm sorry, absolutely James, but... not cutting this out. Um, okay. I, right, what... I do enjoy that. I enjoy your, um, your parity, the parity of approach you have. It doesn't <laughs> matter who you're interviewing, what they're promoting, what their background is. You will ask them all the same questions about the, t- the TV shows that you like. Yes, my favorite. Favorite thing was when we had Jared Harris on to talk about Chernobyl, and I just started with the expanse and just tried not to move of off it from there. Of course, yeah. <laughs> is the next issue of Empire? Is it really just Steven Spielberg, Edgar Wright, etc., talking about whether they like the expanse or not? It is. is yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. we got them all in to talk about yeah. shows James likes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. true. Uh, speaking of shows James is planning to like, uh, did you see that Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead are going to be making the Moon Knight series? So these are the guys behind the Endless and Synchronic independent filmmakers. Really, really kind of bold storytellers. And they're, they're taking great, on yeah. Marvel's Moon Knight. And that's really exciting. I don't know a lot about Moon Knight. He's maybe one of the main Marvel characters or one of the Marvel characters I'm least familiar with. It's a, it's a bit of a blank canvas, isn't it? Like, n- not everyone has preconceptions about that character. So I think they'll be able to cut loose a little bit. Um, I want to talk about Joe Barton. Um, yes, he indeed. is obviously Mr. Giri Hadji, which we enjoyed very much on this podcast. And he had some big news this week, which is that he signed on to showrun The Batman on HBO Max. Now, not to be confused with the film, The Batman, although they are kind of one of the same in that Matt Reeves, the film, The Batman, is the same world as Joe Barton's The Batman. So um, it the TV series, I believe, will come out before the film. Um, it was previously put on pause because Terence Winter, who was the um, showrunner before Joe, um, had left after creative differences, which I imagine can be challenging if you're trying to co-create a certain specific Batman universe, um, which Matt Reeves will be doing. Um, but I think this is really exciting because I think, you know, and Joe wrote Humans. Um, mm. He is a, a brilliant writer. And I think this is a really exciting signing both for him and for the Batman. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. No, no, absolutely. He he's awesome, and this is this is a show that I'm very interested to see because, like, so it's connected to the R. Pat's Batman, which yeah. I'm really into from the trailer of that. I know people don't like Ernest Batman, but I'm a hundred percent fucking here for Ernest Batman. So uh, big excitement about not, this one. Uh, not, as in E E A R N E S T, not Ernest Batman, a character you've invented in your yeah. head. Ernest Batman. <laughs> Ernest That's Batman. The new, I'm Ernest. No, uh, not not Ernest the Batman. Just the important. Uh, just being Ernest Batman. Um, I'm very excited about Batman. that project. Um, the other yeah. thing, it was a week of, of, of really exciting news because the other thing is the I Am um, casting. Did you see that? The third and final. Oh, no, of, I haven't. Yeah, Ooh, no. this, uh, Leslie Manville is the is the oh, next wow. yeah, star of I Am, which was um, Dominic Savage's concept where he he and a brilliant actor, uh, actress, conceive of a story together and they work on it together and they work on the script and the ideas together. Um, and um, it, it was already confirmed that Saran Jones is doing one. Her one's called I Am Victoria. Um, Letitia Wright's doing I Am Danielle, but they hadn't yet confirmed until this week that Leslie Manville was the third. And her one is going to be called I Am Maria. It's co-stars uh, Michael Gould and Gershwin Eustace Jr. Um, and who, I mean, what a lineup. What a brilliant mm. lineup. Leslie Manville, Letitia Wright and Saran Jones. It doesn't get better than that for three separate self-contained dramas um, coming up mm. this year on Channel 4. Boyd, Boyd, now tell me something, tell me something. Since you are a long-time fan of non-English language sort of random Netflix uh, shows like La Casa du Papel, um, Borgen, yeah. have you, are you a big Borgen fan? Oh, yeah, Borgen's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so Borgen's coming back, yes, to Netflix. Yeah, yeah. it's weird, yeah, because Borgen has been a show that – it was one of the key um, BBC4 Saturday night um, foreign dramas along with The Killing. Really, it was probably mm. second only to The Killing and The Bridge, the Danish maybe. Danish West Wing. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a brilliant political drama, um, and it's very exciting that it's coming back. Yeah, totally financed and commissioned by Netflix now. Yeah, but fair enough. And they unveiled the cast. It's a star-studded cast. I think if you're in Scandinavian, then it's a star-studded cast. It didn't mean much to me personally no, looking at it, but no. I'm just excited by the fact that it's coming back. It's very, it's brilliant. Yeah. So that's good news. Uh, did you also see? Did you see the trailer for Clarice, CBS's Hannibal yes. Lecter spin-off thing? I don't know quite what to make of that because I, no. I was like, certainly from the synopsis, I thought this feels like it's going to be a setup to a kind of procedural, and I can kind of do without a Silence of the Lambs procedural where Clarice catches a new, you know, cannibal slash skinning person each week, but. I really liked the trailer. I thought it was really effective. It used imagery, kind of flashing back to the story of Silence of the Lambs. So it does feel like they're leaning into the use of that character and who she is. And I love the idea that she is still what she was because it's set just six months after Silence of the Lambs. So she's still a young, you know, very junior FBI agent, but suddenly one with this celebrity who has, you know, cracked this massive case. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what that plays out. If it turns into a weekly procedural, then, you know, it can skin itself. But until then. Yeah. I mean, I was against the whole idea of it because I'm a huge fan of Hannibal I thought Hannibal mm. was fantastic the Brian Fuller um, yeah, series yeah, yeah. and he he had a massive plan I interviewed him I think around series two of Hannibal and he had a whole plan of how he was going to get into the science of the lambs era um, of Clarice Starling and all of that and he was had a wildly ambitious um, incredibly bold ver new version of those stories and that story and that character and that whole world. And it's a real shame that he his series finished after three spectacularly demented seasons. So I was kind of against Clarice because I thought, well, he should have been able to do that. But having seen that 
trailer, I agree. And this is Alex Kurtzman involved, isn't he, in this um, mm. show running it? I- I'm kind of on board, I think. Yeah, I mean, I-, I love, I absolutely love these characters. I love the Thomas Harris books. I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, e- even of, e- I mean, the, the one of the worst films ever made was the one about young <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. It was terrible, but even I got some enjoyment <laughs> out of it. But um, I'm, I'm so, yeah, I mean, I'm very excited about this. Yeah. Did you see the terrible news about the Lincoln lawyer? No. The Lincoln lawyer, which has floated around and at one point looked like it might be coming to Amazon, has been scooped up by Netflix. Now, obviously, this is in itself not a bad thing in isolation. Netflix is making a show about the Lincoln lawyer. That is great. Lincoln lawyer, if people don't know, is uh, from the Michael Connolly books. Uh, Mickey Haller is the Lincoln lawyer, played by Matthew McConaughey in the film. He's going to be played by uh, Manuel Garcia Rulfo in this. However, my dream, my hope, my prayer, uh, which was not prognosticated, was that it would because it's set in the same world as Bosch, the same universe as Bosch. I thought it would come to Amazon and we'd get a fucking crossover. Titus Wellever would rock up in the Lincoln Lawyer. The Boschiverse would go on after Bosch ends. And I was really holding on for that. And obviously that's very unlikely now to happen. It's not going to, is it? Because it's going to Netflix. Um, So that's a bit of a missed opportunity. But I'm sure it'll be a good show anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Any other news? <laughs> I, clearly, you're both very underwhelmed by that little speech, but sure. Okay, fine. Clearly, clearly, the expansion of the Boshiverse is, is unique to me. Um, Pretty much. Are you, Terry, for example, excited that Danny Boyle is doing a limited series about the Sex Pistols? Well, I was when it came out last week. Well, fine. Oh, we didn't cover that news last week, Terry. So we, I guess we won't talk news. about that now, then. <laughs> That was not last week. It was earlier this week. What are you I think like? it was this week as well, to be it fair. Was this I, think, week. Yeah, I got yeah. the press release on fucking Tuesday. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think Terry's been in COVID, post-COVID delirium, so I don't know. If, yeah. <laughs> Fine, yes, really excited about that. I'd, I'm not, but you see, I'd, I'm Sex Pistols limited series. I mean... <laughs> I mean, I feel exactly the same way about it, but I just assumed you'd, like, you'd be more excited. <laughs> yeah, right. more okay, excited. well, that was news. At this point, I'm assuming there is nothing else, so uh, we will move on now to this week's reviews. First up this week is the latest Star Trek series to hit the airwaves. Uh, this one is created by Mike McMahon, a former writer and producer on Rick and Morty, so it should surprise absolutely no one, then, that Lower Decks is a Rick and Morty-esque adult animation set aboard the USS Cerritos, and rather than revolving around all the big action on the bridge, this follows a group of low-ranking officers toiling away on the less glamorous aspects of Starfleet work. Terry, is this the show that has finally turned you to Star Trek? Absolutely fucking not. So, um, <laughs> uh, I watched this two and a half times um, to try. So Im- imagine, imagine my difficulties because um, not a massive fan of uh, adult animation, which I presume this is what this is meant to be. <laughs> I, as we've talked about before, I've, I've enjoyed the odd episode of Star Trek when I've had to watch it for this podcast, but I am definitely not a, a Star Trek viewer. So imagine my delight when <laughs> James asked me to watch a fucking Star Trek adult animation. Um, so as the title would suggest, Lower Deck, it is uh, set among the support crew um, that I believe do something called Second Contact. Um, so. And this is confusing because it is still unclear to me. Is it? Is it a spoof? Is it? It's a little bit fan fictiony. 
is it kind of for is it for real i don't i don't know is the <laughs> answer i also don't it's not really canon, get, Terry. <laughs> i don't understand it, the audience i couldn't work out um if it is because there are moments kind of slight risque stuff in there or is it meant to be actually more for kids it's very from what i can tell because i didn't understand it and therefore i have to make this assumption <laughs> it's very meta i presume it's being meta because but i obviously don't know what it's being meta about um so what's interesting about this is that it's not so things like star trek right work because of their ambition right their narrative ambition as mad and weird as that may sometimes be they tell big stories around big heroic characters it's usually very binary goodies baddies um quite a lot at stake um and that isn't really the case here because the people it's set around and by the way it's basically down to now in space are kind of geeks and slackers and losers and they're the kind of minor characters you'd normally see around the fringe of a show um but here they are the show so i think it's funny in points there's a bit i wrote where uh they said go to your happy place think about the warp core <laughs> it's like I mean, you're talking to me that made me laugh but i don't know what a warp core is um but it seemed to be a kind of a sci-fi joke i imagine you would benefit if you understand the wider star trek universe in terms of i have to assume it is interconnected and therefore if you understand how it's interconnected and you understand the meta gags and jokes um then i imagine you get more out of this um the basic story is about um an infection that goes through um the ship um that turns everyone into zombies i think um i think there's there's black vomit and uh there's what looks like zombies that's kind of my take on it in that yeah i've written uh loads of meta jokes that i didn't understand so therefore i have to presume they're meta although do they work as meta jokes if i don't understand what the joke is is a big existential question um little bits of it made me laugh little bits of it um uh tickled me i think it's quite an interesting concept to have the people who are like not saving the ship or planets from you know destruction but are emptying bins and you know cleaning the bogs or yeah they clean rooms and they empty the bins and and are those interesting characters i don't know i mean look <laughs> i watched it two and a half times that's pretty much what i got from it <laughs> i imagine if you like this stuff it's good um but it didn't seem also and i couldn't tell if this was deliberate it didn't seem visually particularly that sophisticated in terms of the animation itself and maybe it's meant to be crude and it's meant to be um a little bit first base but it definitely doesn't do anything i would argue particularly sophisticated from a visual perspective and the writing was okay and made me laugh in places, but but there wasn't any kind of huge flair, I'd say, in, in the writing either. But again, I'm not sure if those were deliberate 
things and I felt like it was trying to be irreverent within the Star Trek universe but I couldn't tell you how successful it was at that irreverence apart from it didn't feel very irreverent to me well I'm glad you enjoyed it (laughs) it's not doing much that but what is it right you tell me you're a you're a Star Trek person right yes I am a Star Trek person tell me what it tell me what because because I was like, it either has to do something impressive animation-wise or, you know, have really... Because the greatest adult animation has the most crisp and brilliant writing, in my mind. That's what makes The Simpsons amazing. It's or did. actually not the animation, it's Many the writing. Many years ago. Yeah, but that's, that, it's, the, it's the writing, right? Yeah, sure. So, so what, what is it that this does well? Because I couldn't find it. In some ways, I'm not particularly well-placed to answer this question because essentially what you're asking is why do people watch Rick and Morty? Um, And Mm. I don't know is the answer to that. So I feel like adult animation is something I've never really been able to get my head around. We tried during Funny or Dire. I watched Rick and Morty. I've watched BoJack Horseman. I've watched a number Mm. of sort of adult animation shows. They don't really do it for me. Um, And what this is, this is even slightly more niche. So this is essentially, you know, trying to take that Rick and Morty, very, you know, sort of trying to take funny writing, animation, adult subject matter, but also applied to Star Trek. So it's a smaller Venn diagram of people who like adult animation and people who know enough about Star Trek to get, as you say, the meta in-jokery in this. Uh, I don't think you necessarily 100% need it. Like, if you were a Rick and Morty fan who didn't watch Star Trek, I think you'd still enjoy this, potentially. But I think you certainly get a lot more out of it. Whereas I came at it from the other side of the Venn diagram, where I have no interest in Rick and Morty, but I like Star Trek enough that some of the familiar beats in this and some of the references tickled me slightly. Like, you know, whether it be just seeing the little L cars interface, that will mean nothing to you, you know. Uh, the sound effects, references to different races, like Orion turning up, you know, it's it's that. I thought, ah, oh. like it felt to me, well, essentially what it is. So there's an episode of Star Trek: Next Generation uh, from season seven. It's about seven fifteen, mm. I think, uh, called Lower Decks, and it's essentially what this is. It's about uh, a bunch of sort of junior officers and how they react to what's going on. And you just see glimpses of what would be the main story on the bridge that you would be watching every week, but you're seeing it Mm. from the perspective of these other people. And so they've taken that, turned it into comedy and run with it on this show. And I think broadly speaking, that's quite a fun thing to do. But if you're going to do it as adult animation, I almost think, well, the lower deck part of it is almost irrelevant. Like, yes, this is a funny way to do it, but you could just as easily have set this on the bridge. And because you're taking this humorous animated tone to it, you know, it still would have been its own thing and would have, felt much the same as this. I almost think the lower deck conceit works better in a more straight-laced live-action setting where you can juxtapose yeah. it with the main Star Trek series. I almost think that that, that aspect of this is almost wasted here. Um, but, you know, it, it had some good writing in it. It had some fun gags. Uh, I particularly enjoyed a line about uh, being on a Klingon prison planet and having to fight a Yeti for her own shoes just because he was being a dick. I thought that was quite funny. But you could extract the Star Trek from this quite easily and just make it an adult animation sci-fi show. Well, it's not particularly adult. I suppose that's no, what yeah. confused me as well. That I is that I is. always expect adult animation to, you almost, you know, it's that tension, right, between the animation, which is inherently meant to be for kids, and mm. the, the tension between that as a visual execution and the content, which is adult. But it didn't feel very adult I agree, yeah, I, I agree. I think it, it looks like Rick and Morty. It's got that style, the, anim- the visually. Yeah. But I, d- I don't think it is that adult. I think it's more Simpsons level for me, like kind of irreverent and cheeky and, you know, but absolutely could be enjoyed by, you know, 11, 12-year-olds. 
wasn't, and they mm. and they abs- and they deliberately shy away from. There's no swearing in it. In fact, there's a point. There's a bit where they're about to swear and they don't. Um, and and I thought that was quite interesting because I thought it's like, well, you know, in in actual ad- adult animation, you know, BoJack Horseman's full of r- proper edgy. Out, out there, subject matter, you know, the way it treats with sex and addiction and all of that. that that's what that's dealing with. This doesn't feel like that kind of show. It just feels to me like a, and I feel that's slightly the problem with it. That I, I, I mean, I actually enjoyed it, I think, more, a lot more than you, than the, the, certainly that Terry did. I thought it was perfectly fine, but I did wish it was slightly edgier than it was allowing itself to be and slightly more daring. It felt to me like a thing. I actually think it's it, it, the only possible reason for his existence is Star Trek. It is, it's literally someone's gone, someone who loves Star Trek and someone who loves animation has gone, well, why don't I do my, you know, ver- sophisticated, irreverent, um, very, very fond tri- tribute to Star Trek in animated form using the lower deck idea, which I thought was, again, was... In, in interesting and entertaining so i think that is the point of it i think it feels to me like well i think absolutely for star trek fans to enjoy to go let's have a really well a really well produced um smart animated take on star trek and that's what this is i i, mm. I, I you know i don't think it doesn't feel like a spectacular triumph but it feels like it's giving its audience pretty much what it wants Mm. You're right. It's not edgy enough, but it's probably a little. It's definitely not aimed at kids. I think it probably does fall maybe in a if you want to call it like in a teenage zone. That's probably where its yeah, safe zone is. Sure. Um, my main issue with this is all things. I don't love adult animation, and also Star Trek is frankly no laughing matter. Like I take my Star Trek very seriously. <laughs> I want it to take itself seriously. I don't want it to be lampooned. I reject your mockery, no matter how fucking affectionate it might be. You know, and and I'm like, how dare you make fun of my Star Trek? And that I had a little bit of that all the way through this. That even though it clearly comes from Did a place you? of love, yeah, yeah, I it comes from a place of love, and it I, does, I, yeah. Yeah, and it's 100% affectionate. I don't believe they're actually mocking Star Trek. No. They are lampooning it. But And I'm fine with stuff like Galaxy Quest and stuff, but, although I don't watch the Orville. But I like when I want to watch Star Trek, I want to get into it. Like, it's the same problem I have with Doctor Who. I need it to take itself seriously for me to anchor myself in the narrative. And I can't be dealing with silliness. And I think this you're, you're confusing taking yourself seriously with having humour. And it's like every, every any Star Trek is full of humour. Star Trek is, is funny, but you've got to have no, no, humour. It has levity. It has levity. I wouldn't say, you know, no, it never gets trouble silly. Triples. Do me a favour. Yeah, no, okay, mean, some episodes have a lot of levity. Yeah, yeah. Star Trek was a show thank god that at key moments didn't take itself as seriously as you are taking it and this show i feel is like is laughing with it not at it it's like that's the key it's definitely a fond humorous you know reflect and, and there are loads of jokes about star trek but they're jokes where you're lo- as i say you're, you're being irreverent about it and that's absolutely fine I, I think it i think it's a bit much and doctor who does take itself seriously but it's funny all the way through because yeah. any drama has to be funny all the way through no but see i and i we've talked about this endlessly i believe great comedy comes out of a dramatic base you have to have a foundation of drama from which to sprinkle levity and comedy and that makes the juxtaposition of those two things yeah. makes it work what sure. i dislike is narratives that takes place in the kind of heightened artificial realm of comedic intent where i can't find any grounding in it i just like i'm just like this is just Mm. fucking stupid i can't i cannot latch onto this because it's stupid and this is stupid oh i I didn't feel it was stupid i thought it was fairly fairly (laughs) that's why i can't get on with any of these shows i don't like rick and morty either but rick and morty's slightly 
different in tone. Uh, there is a smugness, I think, to those shows, which you would think would appeal to me, but strangely doesn't. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, go um, wait till we get to WandaVision. Jeez. Well, indeed. All right, yeah. fine. Okay. Well, <laughs> Trekkies or not, Rick and Morty fans or not, uh, Star Trek Lower Decks starts on Amazon on Friday, January the 22nd. Next up this week, we have WandaVision, the first two episodes of which landed on Disney Plus on Friday. Now, this is the first of the MCU's new run of TV shows, and it is an unconventional one. Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen start as Vision and Scarlet Witch, except, of course, Vision was killed by Thanos, and last time we checked, Scarlet Witch wasn't a 1950s housewife. Weird then, to be sure, but Boyd, is it good? Well, I think this is one of absolutely fascinating series to discuss because and to watch because for me, I had the, so I, we, we got the first three episodes right. So the first two, as you say, is going out as a double bill. Went out as a double bill on Friday, and then it'll be weekly. And um, it does thrust these characters, these beloved, fascinating um, Avengers characters that we've got to know in those films, into a American vintage sitcom setting, and that is such a contrived elaborate hmm. bold daring weird thing to do that you're it's a very disconcerting discombobulating thing to watch i think so my viewing experience personally was because i'd read the the article in empire i read kishuit's article in empire which set me up so i knew what roughly hmm. what to expect but what it doesn't prepare you for is quite just how religiously accurate it's going to be in its recreation of a 1950s I Love Lucy, Dick mm -hmm. Van Dyke show in the first episode, style sitcom, complete with studio audience. Yeah. And then in the second episode, a, a canned laughter audience. It's, it's, it's set slightly further. It kind of advances in time, each one. And the third one, all I'll say is that then it explodes into colour and it kind of has a 60s vibe to it. But each of its um, pastiches, if you like, of American classic sitcoms are incredibly bold and specific and accurate and that down to the framing down to the editing style down to the acting style which is very heightened and over the top in many ways from both Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen and everyone else in the cast so it's just a really freaky experience to watch these characters and watch this Marvel thing taking place in this very specific world of American sitcom and I'm thinking like what are young fans what is the average yeah. fan of a fucking Avengers yeah. film is going to make of this uh. unbelievably bold concept and is it actually is the viewing experience actually enjoyable and pleasurable and exciting enough to warrant this unbelievably bold premise i i have to be honest with you as i watched the first couple of episodes i was slightly doubting it i think there are moments in in episodes one and two particularly when i'm like this is straight so far away from what you want of a marvel superhero narrative and TV show that it's actually feeling a little bit much. Like I was like, actually, it's got maybe every now and then I was thinking it's actually maybe a little bit boring, a little bit irritating, a little bit too much, a little bit clever, clever and smug. But you know what? I think it's key. I actually, it was the third episode for me was the one that really won me around. And I was thinking, actually, yeah. this is kind of amazing. And by the end of the third episode, it, and there are intimations. So there are little intimations throughout all three episodes. It, sometimes in the in the, clo where the way the closing titles arrive, that there's something bigger going on. So 
the why are they in the sitcom land universe there's a reason for it you know is it is it all taking place in in her mind maybe are they being are they the subject of some kind of experiment you know where they, they feel as like they're being watched and there's you know they're without spoiling it there's definitely something going on there's a reason why they've been thrust into these sitcom style existences so like and that as that plays out and as more of those things occur to to show you that there's something bigger going on then you'll get more and more intrigued so by the end of the third episode watching three i was completely on board i have to say and i'm like i i my doubts about the boldness of the premise are kind of wiped away because i think it has to be that devoted to what it's to what it's pastiching for the premise to play out and work in the way no doubt it will work in the end when we find out exactly what the fuck is going on my feeling on this at the moment is that I predict this might, when I've seen all of them, be a show I absolutely love. At the moment, it's a show I tolerate. And the reason for that is I don't enjoy period sitcoms, and this is a period sitcom. And whether, it, whether in fact what it actually is is a thriller wearing a sitcom's clothes, which I do believe is ultimately what this show is, that's not apparent at this stage. So the first episode of this, you know, rightly or wrongly, is just a 1950s sitcom. There is nothing else to it. There is a moment where the illusion wobbles slightly, but it is basically a 1950s sitcom. Sure, it's Vision and Scarlet Witch, and there's magic, and he's an android, and there's stuff, but it's basically a 50s sitcom. It uses that kind of humour. It's that kind of writing. It's that kind of set and aesthetic. You know, so... Whether you like, regardless of your MCU feelings, if you are someone who's not going to enjoy watching a 1950s sitcom like I Love Lucy, you're probably not going to enjoy that episode very much. And then the second episode is much the same thing. It moves on to a kind of bewitched I dream of genie thing, so it advances in time slightly, but it is still an old, you know, 50s slash 60s early era sitcom which only vaguely and there are moments where there's sort of there's a sinister vibe where it alludes to the bigger picture and that mm. those are the moments that i was like yes okay this is this is what i'm here for this is what i want to see but there's not a lot of it and exactly as you've nailed on it's only in episode three where they sort of edge into the sort of 60s 70s era um that you think oh okay now i'm starting to see the fringes and weirdly i think this will get better as it goes along for two reasons one because i think you'll see more of the larger thriller beneath the sitcom and that truman show element of it will come to the surface i think it'll be great but also from a you know purely personal point of view the idea of this show is it advances through the histories of sitcoms so it's going to go from 70s sitcoms to 80s sitcoms to 90s sitcoms to naughty sitcoms so and as it becomes more contemporary i think i'll be more invested in it i won't feel quite as separated from it but to your point i think you know say you're a 13 year old mcu fan and you're watching this your first thought has got to be what the fuck is going on like what am i watching why am i watching it i'm bored off my tits because it, it leans into that conceit yeah. so hard but while while i did and i did bring that up but what i actually think funnily enough i actually think those 13 year olds are so sophisticated now in their in the way they consume pop culture that they will run with it i think they will run with it and they're because so it's meta yeah, because it's meta and because it's clearly even the one thing, as you say, the one moment that might happen in, in mm. episode one that takes you out of. And they've and it's brilliantly done. Like, that's, yeah, it is. It's so subtle, but there's suddenly the editing and the tone and the pace yeah. suddenly changes just for a moment. In really episode sinister one. In episode, as well. Very sinister, brilliantly sinister. There's a David Lynchian thing mm. and that, in episode two, amazing moment, right? And I thought it was so beautifully done. That transition from the I Love Lucy, Dick Van Dyke show to a David Lynch <laughs> thing is astonishing. Yeah. It's so, yeah. so I think that 13-year-old you're talking about, I think actually they'll go along with it. I think partly because it's just such a huge cultural event 
you know, this is the arrival of of the MCU on TV, if you like, on Disney Plus. But also because I think those people are much more sophisticated than they would have been, you know, 10, 20 years ago. You may be right. And these characters might be enough to anchor them to this yeah. format, even yeah. if the characters are only kind of sort of vaguely fit the, the you know the mold of the characters that they're used to but i think beyond any of that and beyond how audiences react to it i do think this is a show that you know almost can only be judged when you've seen the whole thing so i think at this yeah. stage which is we just don't know enough about it but regardless of how it ends up i think massive props to them i mean this wasn't the first mcu show that was going to go on disney plus that was going to be falcon and winter soldier this has ended up being the first one but for the first show to go out to be this bold and this audacious and to lean into this crazy conceit so hard i mean I mean, fucking hats off to them like only in this era of television is something like this possible uh, and i massively respect that and i also think weirdly for those people who love mcu movies and uh, maybe a little bit hesitant about why they're now on tv like this of all of them is 100% television, could only have worked on mm. television. It's all about television. It is 100% television first. And I think that that works really well as well. Yes, I love this. I absolutely fucking love this because to Boyd's point, I think the commitment to this concept is extraordinary, which really is, as you say, each one, 50s, 60s, 70s, we've seen the first three episodes, especially the first two, it's so pronounced. I mean, the aspect ratio, the way it's lit, every single tiny detail. And I have to say hats off to Kevin Feige and to the entire filmmaking team, actually, because the amount of commitment they've displayed for what is a high it is high concept and and they fully lean into it but at the same time to your point james they lean into the medium so they mm. this absolutely could not exist as anything but television and they treat the medium with such respect and reverence and love and you can tell that this is built by a team who loves sitcoms love the architecture and the art of the sitcom um and it it massively works for me and those moments even though they're microscopic especially in episode one those slight tonal shifts the cracks in the illusion when something else threatens to come through they're just inc so incredibly well done and it builds through the first three episodes um and the third episode is definitely moves on in a much more pronounced way than the first two mm. i do think unlike um mandalorian for example which really was episodic in the sense of each episode felt like its own um its own little world and you could watch them pretty much in in isolation this is clearly a i think there's nine episodes um and this is clearly a a nine part story that is going to make much more sense when it all comes together mm -hmm. um you know and we already know in the comics that there may be there's lots of f um theories as to what has actually happened here um wonder obviously is previously kind of absolutely changed the world um when she's been bereaved so there's lots and lots and lots of theories and i think you don't need to know at this point the mystery at the heart of it is really really compelling the performances are great the like production design is insane the costume and we've got to talk about can't believe we haven't talked about Catherine Harnmore because oh my mm. god she is <laughs> incredible she's the kind of nosy neighbor and there is a scene in episode three where the cracks really start to show where she is just phenomenal there's a, a switch um that's all I'm going to say it was a switch that occurs halfway through that scene and it's just 
brilliant. I mean, as Boyd said, even the credits, like the 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 storytelling um, that's being done in those moments, is also phenomenal. I just like felt like I hadn't seen anything done like this previously. Audacious is the word Helen O'Hara used in the Empire Review, and that is the absolute right word to use. The the balls to put something like this <laughs> out into the world, to your point, like, you know, to kids who wouldn't know a sitcom if they tripped over it, definitely wouldn't know I Love Lucy, including, you know, hardcore comic fans. Like, this is going to have to do what Mandalorian did, which is satisfy the hardcore and the people who know this inside out, which it will because the detail is so extraordinary, the detail of the universe within it, but also, you know, speak to something of a wider audience, a television audience. And I think I think it will do that as well, even if you don't know every inch of the comic books or even the MCU on the big screen. I just, I found this so exciting to watch because I was just, I, you just, I felt like I was watching TV kind of history being made. It felt such a... a bold and massive idea. Um, so I can't wait to watch the rest. And I honestly wasn't that excited before I watched this. I kind of respected the concept. I respected what they were trying to do. Um, but I, I worried that it was going to be a high concept thing that I just wouldn't feel compelled to watch in terms of storytelling. I always thought it would be executed perfectly because there is a filmmaking team who know exactly how to do that, that it would be precise. But it's got, you know, these tonal shifts. It has these moments of darkness um, kind of behind those fixed fake smiles are just done so brilliantly. I was totally sucked up into the world um, and I can't wait to watch the rest. Yeah, I mean, it's just very reminiscent of Pleasantville kind of across the board, which is a film that I really, really enjoy. Uh, Gary Ross film from late 90s, I want to say, uh, which is, again, a similar sort of thing in a black and white show, but that's more about awakening and knowledge and sexuality and how it affects these kind of, you know, but it's still that idea of colour of another world cracking through this facade mm. of this of this sort of period piece but uh, yeah whether or not people stick it out because like i say like i think unless you've what i think anyone who's not sure watch the first three because i don't think you can really make a call on this or even what it's going to be because there's not enough of a clue of what it's going to be until you get to that third episode they only aired the first two on friday so whether or not you know doubters will stick it out for the extra week to see that third episode who knows but let's hope they do um but the first two episodes as we said are available now on disney plus the third episode drops this friday and that is wandavision finally this week we have it's a sin which you've heard a fair bit about already today uh, but this is russell t davis new series about a group of friends navigating the rise of aids in 80s london terry what did you think of this one you know, I want to first of all, and we should say, obviously, Russell's left the room, well, virtual room, so um, uh, he's not listening to us review this. We're going to give it an honest review, as we always would. Um, but I think, you know, we have to remember with, with Russell what a hugely important filmmaker and voice he has been in British culture, but especially TV culture, um, over the last 
three decades, you know, Queer as Folk, Cucumber, he's been such an important part of those stories being told. And as he mentioned earlier, you know, this is, I think, 30 years. And he said the same to Boyd when Boyd interviewed him for Empire Magazine, waiting to tell this story. And it's it's very much based on his life and the life he saw being lived around him in the 80s. So this is set in a London flatshell 1981, um, a group of friends uh, who've come together, you know, fleeing provincial kind of ordinariness, um, hiding who they are and have come to London to be themselves and to live this life of freedom. And, you know, it is dealing with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and you sense this threat from very early on. But what I love about this is the joy um, and the depiction of freedom and and the freedom that comes with being yourself that is in this show. Because I think what's really, really important is the combination of joy and tragedy and sadness and vibrancy and life. It isn't a show about death. And it is a show about death, but it's not just a show about death. And and I think we've always said that it's about Russell T. Davis. It's what he does so brilliantly. You know, years and years was all about those tonal shifts. And this is kind of no different. Um, And we have seen a lot of this in America, you know, as we discussed earlier, Angels in America, The Normal Heart. Um, These, this has been really well told in many respects by American filmmakers. Pose um, is is a current one that's also done a lot of great work. Um, But to do a British story feels very different and it does feel like a very British story. And it's five episodes. I've seen the first three um, and it's telling the story over a decade and it begins from when when you've just got these whispers of something, these stories about this thing happening in America. And there is, James, as you were saying earlier, there's this echo um, of modern day. You know, there's a virus, there's conspiracy theories, there's disinformation, there's people who don't believe it's a thing because what it's up against is this backdrop of homophobia, you know, the really violently anti-gay um, rhetoric of the 1980s. If you think mm-hmm. about some of the things that were in newspapers, that were on television, you know, they that were legislated. Poli- that, yeah, and that politicians were saying. It, it was, you know, a really, really grim age in many respects for all of that. Um, and that's very much in the background as well. Um, but initially it starts with this great, you know, this great gang of mates and you really buy into their friendship. So Ollie Alexander, who is obviously um, the front man for years and years, he plays Richie. Omari Douglas is Roscoe and Columns, Callum Scott Howells is um, Colin. Lydia West is their kind of best female mate so we'll know her from years and years um and from dracula keely halls is in there she plays richie's mum um it is an amazing cast you've got neil patrick harris who's incredible <laughs> stephen fry's in there i mean the the cast is remarkable um and they are, they all put in amazing performances and and what you get in the three episodes that i saw are very much this kind of 
twin story of you've got dance floors and then you've got, you know, hospital aids wards. You've got these moments of complete freedom and liberation on the dance floor. Um, and then you've got this complete isolation of people locked forcibly in hospital wards, not allowed to come out. Um, and the joy is really important. They have fun. They have great sex. Um, I thought it was really interesting what Russell was just saying about where the camera was and mm. how the camera was there down with them. And you can feel the sweat and feel the heat. And the sex scenes are um, are fun. And they are, I, would, I mean, I wouldn't say graphic, but they are Russell T. Davies sex scenes. You see sex as you should actually see sex. Um, so what I would say is, and I have only watched the first three, is that because there are several characters, um, you don't necessarily get a huge amount of time to fully understand their backstory or or really, really, really in-depth characterization. And I could maybe in those early episodes have done with a little bit more of that, um, of who they are and, and, and a little bit deeper into their specific story and their specific perspective. But what it does do an amazing job at is really establishing what it was like to live as a young gay man in that time, in that city, what it was like to have that fear in the background kind of which rubbed up against this joy and happiness that they were experiencing as well and in that way it feels really authentic you know it's been made by a man who lived this because it has got that sense of this is what it was really like and I love the fact that it doesn't fall into those kind of cliches of it all being you know seedy sex in dark corners that's always overshadowed by danger because of the virus there's a sense of of these were lives as they were really lived. Um, so I'm three episodes in. Uh, I, I can't wait to watch the second two. I just ran out of time. Um, but this feels like a bit of a game-changing piece of television to me in terms of not just representation of the AIDS crisis at that point and over the next decade, but also as a representation of the reality of life for young gay men at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's funny because um, I was watching it again. So I watched it f before I interviewed him. I watched the whole thing kind of in, in one in one go as he recommended that people do. Or certainly, you know, people be able to do it when it all arrives as a box set on all four. And I do think that is the best way of watching it because the whole story has an arc, has, a, has such an emotional, powerful arc that you're devastated by the end but at the same time you are you have been massively entertained by these five hours of tv roughly five hours these five episodes of tv and what i realized watching it again and actually when james was talking about um the second coming and russell was joking about how he was his writing was the same back then he was writing <laughs> in the same way back then and how rose you know the first episode of his doctor who revival was the same the joy as you're talking about is in the writing and actually what i think russell t davis the genre that russell t davis is, is created is his own genre there's a russell t davis way of of, of making television and that's what this is for me and that's why it's so special because he listed all the different um stories of aids most of them american down the years but this is the russell t davis version of the AIDS mm. story mm. and that's what and it's it, almost it's not so much that it's british it's his it's his vision so and what that means is that every time there's a tragic 
devastating emotional moment. It's undercut by a line of dialogue that is funny and it's so daring and he's so doesn't give a fucking shit about offending people. Thank God. Even in this day and age when everyone is worried about offending people, he actually rides through it. And he's <laughs> like, so there's a scene in episode one where someone is is dying, basically. I'm trying mm. not to spoil it. And the guy's talking to him and he's like, and he says about his his lover, he's gone. And the bloke goes, oh no, like he's died. And then, but then he goes to Georgia. <laughs> You know, he hasn't died, he's just gone away somewhere else. And like that's right in the middle of the tragedy. It's basically a joke about, you know, the phrase he's gone. And that happens all the way through. And it's and it is I think it is landmark. I think it is because I think it's like the the culmination trying not to use James style pretentious word, but it's the culmination <laughs> of his career really, because not only has he waited this 30 years to make it, but it's, it's, it's of a piece with queer as folk, which was a game changer in 1999. And then, you know, the second coming and Bob and Rose, which was dealt with bisexuality in an incredible way and everything and cucumber and everything. And years and years. And now this, it's a body of work and it's a Russell T Davis vision. And, and, and include Doctor Who in that really and that's what I love about his stuff is that there's no one quite loads of writers write in, in, you know write write humour into their drama and they mix tragedy and humour that but his tone is absolutely unique and I think it is the it is the joy it's the he takes great joy I think in TV his love of TV as we've heard him today on the show is incredibly infectious and he mm. and it's TV he loves more than me you know, more than film and I'm with him I'm kind of like yeah this is the place where you can you can just undercut pomposity and cliche with just sheer joy. And as you say, in the sex scenes, they're, they're having a laugh. Like it's so, it's funny watching it again. I didn't notice this so much the first time around. In the sex scenes, there's people laughing all the way through. Uh. In the Richie, played brilliantly by Ollie Alexander, is just having a fantastic time. And so when the tragedy strikes, it's kind of like you're, you're not going, oh, oh, it's because they had sex, gay sex. That's why the, you're like, actually, thank fuck they had a brilliant time. Mm. But, you know, before they got this fucking virus, thank God they lived their lives to the full. And all his stuff, I think, is a celebration of living life to the full. And that's what, and that amazingly, in the end, even though it's devastating, and I was absolutely, you know, a wreck when I finished that. And I think everyone who watches that, this fifth and final episode, this whole thing will be devastated and be wrecked. But you, in the end, you, you still come away knowing the joy of living life to the full. And I think that's what all of his stuff does. It's like a celebration of the colorful, vibrant joy of everything. Thing. And that's what this, yeah, this, I think it's, 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 a, it's, I say, it is the culmination of a, of, of a great career of stuff. Obviously, he'll, he'll carry on doing other stuff, but this is definitely a proper landmark in his career and in, you know, what he's done for television. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it has an incredible sense of time and place, this show does. Like, it really grounds you in that era, not just in kind of the trappings of the 80s. At one point, you hear the This Is Your Life fanfare, <laughs> which really kind of took me back to being in mm. bed as a child and my grandma be watching it downstairs. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like, so the, the, it gives you that sense of that, but the sense of the scene and how people sort of lived, and then this sort of, like, this joyous, as you say, this warm, you know, lovely atmosphere of fun and joie de vivre and whatever you want to call it, and and yes, I dropped in some French. You can take this out me later. <laughs> and, uh, but, 
Let's join them, But then in the same way, you know, we talked about, you know, in WandaVision, how it's this surface level thing and then there's this sort of sinister underlying current. This has it too and it gradually amplifies until the end of that first episode where it hits you like a ton of bricks and you start to then realise what this is and obviously that continues as the show goes on. And it's that sense that, you know, these people living their lives, living life to the full and then this dark sort of shape rearing up behind them and then not no one understanding it no one understanding the depth or the breadth or the form of it and almost like you know actively being imp- i mean it must be so hard for for young people watching this show now to understand a world where information wasn't easy to come by like before mm. the internet you know, now google whatever the fuck you want you know there's nothing you can't find out about but then like there was no way to find this stuff out even medical professionals didn't know and didn't care because it didn't affect their immediate community you know it's a it's a really particular thing that happened at a very particular time and that turning point that sort of emergence of aids is something that i think a few people really think about because people understand what it is now and how the disease is treated and suppressed and maintained and whatnot but then you know not knowing what it is being terrified by it like the the just very idea you know as we were saying earlier that this is a disease that targets a specific marginalized community is terrifying i mean it feels like a conspiracy theory that doesn't even sound Mm. real uh and yet that's kind of what it was and then trying to get to grips with it yeah i found this absolutely fascinating um and i know i know exactly what you mean terry that it's not it's not a show that focuses on because it's quite a broad cast of characters it's not a focus Mm -hmm. that drills down into the characterization of one of them it gives you a sense of who they are and who their lives are but it's very much about this thing and that scene and this period in time and how it emerged and they're the you know the players that, that that tell that particular story but um yeah very very good i enjoyed this a lot yeah it is an education i mean it's an i mean i you know i'm kind of you know young slightly younger but i remember the the aids adverts on tv and i remember the you know just the culturally how um the shame of mm. having AIDS was absolute. That's what this brings home so incredibly mm. that you know for the people for the the families denying you know to themselves and to the world what was happening to their sons mostly and all of that and that the the horror of it it's like you know in some ways it's like almost like a horror film that the horror of people not only getting getting this horrendous disease but then having to deny what was really happening mm. and having feeling the shame of it because. They were because just being gay was considered shameful as well. On top of everything, yeah. that he he deals with that. He he he. The anger of that, the way he deals with that, is absolutely astonishing. I think, and it's just it, it will. It's a it's a show. Once you, when you finish watching it, you just it's just gonna you know you almost have to cut, take time to recover. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's gonna it's gonna resound. I think in, in everyone who watches it for quite a long time. Well, it's a sin. Begins on Channel Four this Friday, January the twenty second at nine p.m. and will be available in its entirety on all four at that time as well um also out this week are a couple of other shows we're talking about very quickly because this is the longest podcast in podcast history uh season two of the bay starts on itv on wednesday boyd what can you tell us about that um it's a really really good act to be honest the the bay is you know on some levels it's it's a kind of you know it's an itv um crime drama who done it? The first season saw more than Christine revolved around the fact that she was connected to an investigation, to a murder investigation, in the kind of you know that she was, you know, she was um, 
operating on a, a, operating on dodgy circumstances, put it that way. And then now, as season two begins, she's been kind of demoted, and a colleague is kind of now more in charge of a murder investigation. She's frustrated about that, but it's it's a sh- and then there's a big who done it. The opening scene is a, is a, is a murder, is an incredibly shocking murder, and a, a kind of a, a brilliantly compelling idea is established right from the beginning. There's a murder within this family, and which and there's loads of family secrets that are going to kind of come out week by week. But it's just a really well made, well written, very authentic. I think the key to for me for crime dramas. Um, and actually, it's a bit like Unforgotten, James, as you mentioned in your mm. shows you're looking forward to. It's got that authenticity where it's not over the top. It, f- it flirts, you know, with detective cop drama, whodunit cliches, but actually you believe in it. It's very, very well modulated, very well made, very well acted um, by everyone involved. So you kind of absolutely believe the characters and you believe the premise and it draws you in and it's a really compelling, um, riveting story. So I was really impressed, actually. I watched the first two episodes of this series. I think it's a really good a really classy, um, very well-made um, show. Well, that's the bay. That starts again on Wednesday at 9pm on ITV. Uh, and back comes, well, back uh, for Series 2 this week as well. And that's Mitchell and Webb's latest uh, sitcom, isn't it? Yeah, it's Mitchell and Webb. Um, this is um, uh, the first series of Back was a couple of years ago. It's It was kind of about um, David Mitchell's character finding out that he had a kind of um, brother figure in his life. And it was like a, their, their painfully tortuous relationship um, they had. So, yeah, it's Mitchell and Webb, but they didn't write it. Like Peep Show wasn't written by them either. Simon Blackwell created it, who's a brilliant writer, um, who, who, who's done loads of great things. Um, and uh, and it's a kind of, a, it's partly a showcase for them, but it's also a really clever, interesting idea of kind of this really annoying character that everyone else really loves, um, Robert Webb's character. And David Mitchell kind of has to cope with the fact that everyone loves a character he deeply resents and how that plays out. And it's a, and they are, it's a really, it's brilliantly conceived for them, I think with them in mind. And it's a really clever, brilliantly written um, show. Okay. Uh, what else is out this week? Let us have a look. Riverdale returns to Netflix on Thursday for those who are au fait with all things Archie. Bulletproof South Africa comes to Sky One on Wednesday, the 20th at 9 p.m. What else have we got, Boyd? Anything exciting? Uh, there's Call My Agent, which is a show that I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've mentioned it a few times. It's the French um, kind of showbiz agency um satire comedy it's really really good and the fourth season arrives on netflix next thursday which fans of the show that show are incredibly excited about quite rightly it is a really good show which we've never really um had time to review or focus on but call my agent is really is is a brilliant show and that's back okay. yeah next thursday on i think that's about it do we have a pick of the week i mean it's a sim for me but uh, wandavision i'm i think by the end by the time it gets to the end of wandavision i think i agree with you i think i think it'll be brilliant <laughs> Yeah. It's a sin. It's a sin. And, oh, yes, interesting, I mean, interesting. It's difficult, right? Because Wanda, I've seen three, and I'm also, I have a feeling about how much I'm going to love it in the future. Mm, um, yeah. So it's hard. It's not, it doesn't feel like a fair fight. Um, I mean, both, I mean, lucky us, right? Because both are phenomenal. Yeah, incredible. Well, bold, yeah. really, really brilliant, bold, audacious telly, um, those two shows. Yeah. Oh, James. Indeed. By the way, there's also Fate the Winks Saga that starts on Friday. On oh Netflix. yes, Fate yeah. the Winks Saga is also going to be massive. I mean, I don't know. I can't believe I didn't watch that. Like this is this is like a YA thing about fairies that seems very much up my alley, and yeah. I very much would have liked to have watched it. But I thought I would if that and Lower Decks would have broken Terry's. <laughs> maybe I'd leave it out. Yeah. Also, but, it um, looks dreadful. Yeah, but isn't I, I, it based on like the Winx cartoon thing? Yeah, like it's I think it's aimed at YA fans yeah. of the cartoon. 
I think it's based on an Italian cartoon. I've actually seen a few episodes of it. I did watch a few, and it's not that bad. It's 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 <laughs> it's kind of like I mean, it's not brilliantly written, but it's I, I think it is quite compelling. I have to say, and it, you know, I wasn't expecting to be, even be vaguely interested in it, but it's lavishly. It's one of it's a, is a lavishly Netflix produced YA fantasy thing. I think you're going to love it. James, I have to say, and they're basically witches. I mean, they're called fairies, but they're basically witches. It's basically like Buffy meets Sex Education without the brilliant writing. <laughs> Well, that is our pick of the week, Fate the Winx Saga, which you can watch on Netflix. Uh, And that is it, finally, for this mammoth show. Um, If you'd like us to continue our work, tormenting Terry by forcing her to watch things like animated Star Trek and Fate the Winx Saga, uh, you know, things that drive her to the brink of insanity, then do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at... James C. Dyer at Boyd Hilton and at Terry underscore White. And you can find Russell on Twitter at Russell Davis 63. On next week's show, we are finally getting to see the long awaited third season of Marcella. It has been far too long. And to celebrate that occasion, we'll also have Marcella herself and a Friel on the show to tell us all about it. We'll see you then. Pilot out. <laughs>